Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. It won't be Randy Newberg Unfiltered today because I'm in one of the funnest places I've been to in a long time and I've been meaning to get over here and I was finally able to come to, how do you pronounce this, Kamii? Kamii. Kamii, Idaho, right along the banks of the Clearwater River, is mm-hmm. that what we Correct. got here? Yep. And... Uh, I'm with two great guys, uh, one I've known for a long time who always gives me grief about just life in general, Rocky <laughs> Jacobson. He is the, the Charlie Daniels of the diaphragm or the bugle, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I finally got face-to-face, got to meet with Kurt Howard, his general manager here at Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And we've been talking about getting together and telling big stories for a long time. And finally, I had a break in my schedule, guys. Thanks for yeah. making your schedule work. Yeah, it's a perfect so. time of the year to make it happen for all of us. We're kind of <laughs> yeah. The edge of cabin fever. And, uh, yeah. Wouldn't yeah. work good if we were trying to do this in September, unless we were doing it in Arizona or Montana or Wyoming. Yeah, have yeah. to be on a mountain somewhere, wouldn't it? That'd be better yet. Middle of the day, though. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going to be yeah. hunting in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you aren't a sleep-in guy, Rocky, no, in September? No, 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 Never. <laughs> no. Uh, well, folks, I think when we're done with this one, you're going to say that was worth my time to listen because we have got one of, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to call him, maybe if I say the godfather of, of uh, elk hunting calls, maybe that isn't the right thing to say, but... The Henry Ford, the the genius behind what started it all down the path, or a big part of it. And uh, when you hear Rocky's stories of how he got into this and mm-hmm. where it led him, the <clears throat> went from being a logger to an elk call maker. Yeah, kind of. You know, I was making elk calls when I was logging. Yeah. But business wise, yeah, going from a logger into the business end of making elk calls to sell them, that's quite an experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, the audience is going to get to hear part of that story. <clears throat> and, uh, but before we do that, I'm going to make sure that everybody knows who makes this podcast possible. Uh, Leupold has been a longtime supporter of ours uh, since Moby Dick was a minnow, pretty much. I I can't thank them enough. They love this self-guided public land hunting audience, and any chance they have to be associated with it, they they take that chance. So I'm, I'm grateful for them. Uh, Orion Coolers, uh, those of you who've listened to this podcast, watch our TV show, go out to our Hunt Talk forum on our YouTube channel. You see me using those things, abusing them, destroying them, or trying to destroy them, I guess would be the the proper term. Uh, And they now have a new promo code that if you buy one of their coolers and you use the promo code Randy, they're going to give you one of these stainless steel tumblers. it's uh, got the Hunt Talk logo on it and everything. So go to OrionCoolers.com and you'll be able to, to get yourself a tumbler in addition to a cooler. And they do have the coolest <clears throat> colors of coolers of anybody in the business besides being the best coolers. Uh, additionally, we have Onyx Maps. Uh, they're... We're, we're doing this series called e-scouting out on our, our website where we're teaching people how to scout from home. Uh, very common question I get is, hey, I live in Michigan. How, do, how am I going to know what it looks like when I get out there? How do I build a plan? So 
Right now we're on episode four, and uh, it looks like if we get into greater detail, uh, we might be on episode 14 before we're too long. Um, But a huge part of that is just based around the Onyx map system. Uh, And if you go out to onyxmaps.com and use the promo code Randy, they're going to give you 20% off any of their app products, uh, their, their smartphone products. And that's from the elite membership all the way down. So again, Onyx Maps, promo code Randy. And then uh, the Go Hunt system. You guys have heard us talk about it in the tag drawings, how we use Go Hunt for all of our research, all the things we do. Uh, they have their service called the Insider. And if you use the promo code Randy, now we're, we're making this easy. Every, every company we work with, the promo code is R-A-N-D-Y. I'll be darned. Imagine that is yeah. for people like me who aren't good yeah. at spelling and stuff like that or uh, don't have good memory yeah. or stuff. Yeah, it helps you remember your own name. Right, yeah. 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 <laughs> but Rocky, they spell your name with an I-E, not a Y. I, I don't yeah. get... That's because when I'm on top of the mountain, I like to holler, Rocky! <laughs> Uh, so go hunt use the promo code randy and you're going to get a 50 dollars sportsman's warehouse gift card um and if you go to sportsman's warehouse you're going to see a pretty high presence of rocky mountain hunting calls at sportsman's warehouse that you will you guys kind of own our part of the world when it comes to hunting calls it's yeah am, am i fair in saying that i mean you know, the last few years, I'm going to have to say yes. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, no, it was a struggle. Well, yeah, it's yeah, every start, every company's but, getting off uh, its The last few years, uh, it's pretty much known that Rocky Mountain hunting calls are the elk calls of the day and age. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when they put them out on the shelf, you better get there in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the biggest complaint we get the latter part of August, 1st of September is why are, your, why are the pegs empty? Right. But So with all that out of the way, uh, thanks to all those companies for being here. Uh, Rocky, you and I have met at trade shows and we talk out hunting and tell big stories all the time. And uh, you'll ask me questions and uh, I, I'm mostly just listening to you training anyone who comes by your booth you you are like doing missionary work you, you come across so passionate that anyone who walks by i don't care if they're old or young big or small male or female you stop what you're doing even if i don't know maybe it was in the middle of a big sale and you're like well i got to teach this person how to use this diaphragm call we do it's, a lot of that you know it, and i always feel like you know, it's better to have somebody out there hunting that knows what they're doing and doing it good yeah. than it is to have somebody out there not knowing what to do. Yeah. Well, you... And I just love sharing the ideas. And when I see somebody accomplish what, they've, what I've taught them, their eyes light up. They go, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> Especially little kids. They just love it when they put it in their mouths and they just, man, I can make sounds like dad. Yeah. I can call the elk in now for dad. Yeah. You know? Well, pretty I've, cool. I've just observed you and your booth is always stacked like three deep. <laughs> it's always got the most noise coming from it. I mean, that's one of the good things about being at a trade show. Mm-hmm. Having a lot of noise coming from your booth attracts a lot of attention. Yeah, I've always, I've always reminded me um, of like a NASCAR 
pit. When, when, when the car comes in, it's just a bunch of ants around busy. But if we can keep our booths active like that, we seem to be one of the main attractions of the show. And, and, and uh, even if we, st- if we start to see just a little chink in the armor and it's slowing down, Rocky or me or somebody will give a big bugle and all of a sudden here they come again. So we, we can sound the horn, if you will. It's kind of cool because if you're, if you're not selling predator calls for a little while, you just mm-hmm. pick up a predator call and yip, yip, yip on it. And and here they come. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you, the same you can thing. see it. That oh, yeah. 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 Really. It's just they the interest. Are. Yeah. Well, I'm one of those people who have that weakness, too. If I walk by your booth, it's like, well, I got to have one of those. I, I got to have one of those. And, <laughs> but you, you started out with... Uh, a homemade elk call, is that right? Yeah, back right. in the late late 60s when I re- actually started elk hunting with my dad, uh, they didn't have elk bugles, they didn't have diaphragms that we use nowadays. Uh, what they had was a little curly cue uh, type of a bugle and it reminds you of the copper tubing that's on the sinks and the drains that has the little ribs in it. Yeah. You wind that together into a coil effect and you just blow into one end and it makes kind of a whistle sound. Just, you know, and it wasn't real loud, but in in those days we had a lot of elk, and yeah. you could get close to them, and they yeah. could hear it. Huh? So and it started from there. That's what we kind of started with. A lot of the old timers that I knew that hunted elk, that's what they started with. And, uh, eventually, it progressed into garden hoses. You cut them off, PVC <laughs> pipe. Uh, you put a V notch in the end. Or you put a plug in the end where you can blow air across yeah. the plug, and it got louder, so okay. the elk could hear you a little further away. But it still wasn't realistic. Yeah. It, it was a uh, a tool right. to help, but it still wasn't right what the elk were doing. So most of the elk you called in, they were pretty hot. Yeah, you know, they, but on, they were coming. Yeah, they were coming no matter why. You break a branch, they'd probably come <laughs> running to you. <clears throat> but uh, in order to catch those uh, days when the elk weren't hot and they weren't really wanting to come to sounds and stuff, you had to figure out the right tones, the right pitches, everything to get them fired up to get them to come. So we just kept working on different calls, trying to figure out the different sounds. That, yeah. And... Uh, I started watching their body language at the same time they made a certain sound. Yeah. And I could, hey, that's what he's doing. That cow is doing an estrus call because as soon as she did that, that bull come right up and wanted to mount her. Yeah. You know, and I said, man, that's cool. <laughs> How can <laughs> I replicate yeah, that? Yeah, so we have to learn all those different sounds. And over the years, I've been able to figure out a lot of different things that these elk are doing just by watching them mm-hmm. and seeing the sounds that they do at the same time. So, uh-huh. And from that, uh, how did it become a diaphragm call? You know, I mean, is that what you started with? No, uh, I used my voice. I, I mm. use my voice a lot, you know. And, huh. uh, <laughs> like kids, they, they scream out with their voice, blowing air out, and they scream and hit yeah. those high notes. I could never scream outward. I sound like an elephant going through the wood. <laughs> so I had to learn to suck in and use my vocal cords to hit those high screaming notes and cow call with it, sucking in and... Uh, worked really good, but after about 20 bugles, you were gagging and choking. <laughs> and it wasn't fun out there in the middle of the woods. And about the same time that the bull was there and he needed another bugle, you, just, <clears throat> you couldn't get it to come out. <laughs> it was bad, but uh, huh. I can remember but even... you could do it with your voice. Yes, yeah. Wow. Well, I can still do it a little bit, but my eyes will go crossed anymore. <laughs> yeah. Kind of rough on your vocal cords, but... Uh, at that time, did did you ever say, you know, someday I'm going to 
build this into Rocky Mountain hunting calls and I'm going to have Kurt run this and we're going to be this and we're going to be that. Could could that have even been in your mind? Not at, that at all. Time? Not at all yeah. at that time. Um, in fact, when I was making calls and learning all this, I really didn't want to share it with anybody because yeah. I'm calling Elkin and they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Why would yeah. I want to share and, this knowledge? Yeah, it was kind of a top secret thing for quite a while, but there was like four of us that hunted together in the early days and we all used our voice. Yeah, okay. That's the only thing you really had. There was no and, diaphragm. And this was, uh, when you say the early days, were you guys archery hunting then? Yes, in the early okay. 70s when we all started archery hunting. Okay. And we started out with recurs because compounds hadn't come along yet. Yeah. And uh, when Bear Funny initiated one of the first, I think Allen was one of the first compound bows made. It was uh -huh. a wood handle. And, uh, but Bear kind of come out with what they call the Whitetail Hunter and the Polar LTD, and they hit the market with a storm. I mean, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. Now we were shooting 160 foot a second instead of 100. <laughs> <laughs> the arrow would almost get there at 20 yards before the, the bull actually could see it coming. You know? <laughs> but, for, for today's people, when they're shooting over 300, they're like, what, 160? Oh, Are yeah. you kidding they, me? How they, do you kill anything with that? couldn't even imagine it. You know, and <laughs> we finally hit 200 foot a second. And oh, I said, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so we can shoot 30 yards now. <laughs> yeah. So you were, at that time then, you're, you're kind of, yeah, I'll say for lack of a better term, you're the mad scientist down in the basement trying to invent the newest, latest, greatest for your own personal use. Not, not because this was a business model that you wanted to be Rocky Mountain Hunting yes, Call. Yeah, pretty much I wanted to, to design something that worked in the woods for myself, yeah. you know, to call elk. And uh, in the 60s, there was, it was either sex seasons you know, here in Idaho. You could shoot bulls or cows. And in 1970, they changed it to bulls only. I don't know why, but for some reason they thought that we were losing our bull to cow ratio. Okay. And I thought it was still pretty darn good, but uh, we got less elk now than we did then. Right. You know, and they, <clears throat> they're not changing much now <laughs> to help it out. But uh, I just wanted the elk to come to me close range, and I fi figured it out that if you can get the sounds to match what they're doing and be as realistic as possible, they just readily come to you. Yeah. But over the years, you know, things have progressed differently, more hunting pressure, more people are calling. And uh, so you got to have something that's going to work better all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I've just kind of played with this stuff, trying to figure out how to make things better and, and easier to use, too. Yeah. So looking over, and you showed me that drawer of prototypes that you had there. You had... Or just in today, you pulled the drawer open and you said, oh, I think there's about 30 prototypes in here. Yeah, that I've been working on, just different types of calls. and Some of them get put on the back burner because I'm kind of like an artist. Yeah. If you don't feel like wanting to do it at that particular time, you're better off putting it away and come back later after you thought about it some time. And if you figure, well, I got to get it done now, you'll end up do designing it wrong and building it wrong. Huh. So, you, should, uh, you should ask him, Randy... Um, about the original, um, his idea of the pallet plate and how that idea actually came. So sometimes he gets an epiphany on something that's completely unrelated to what is what it is, but he sees a couple things together and like, hmm, if those were paired together, what would we have? You should have him tell you that part. So he, when you were doing all this, obviously, you showed me kind of the first 
iteration of where it started the other day, and it didn't have a pallet plate. Exactly. Um, you know, we used to have turkey calls in the earlier days. I think they were started in the 50s, maybe even earlier than that, but we tried turkey diaphragms for elk calling, and it would work two or three times, but then it'd blow out because the latex was lighter and just wasn't set up for blowing hard on. And uh, there were some guys out there in the market that were doing the same thing, looking at different angles, and I run into a guy that designed probably one of the first mouth call diaphragms called Golden Tone, and he never did really put it on the market, but he, he had the frames made, and he had the latex, and did it all by hand. He just didn't have time to mess with it, so he turned that stuff kind of over to me. He handed all the inventory and the presses and whatever. Oh, yeah. And so I played with open reed diaphragms, and this all happened later in probably like first part of the 80s is when this actually happened. He had them built probably in the late 70s, but they never really took off. And then in the early 80s, uh, Larry D. Jones and uh, Wayne Carlton, they kind of did the same thing. They got uh, diaphragms going and they actually put it on the market. So they are the pioneers basically of uh, the horseshoe open reed. Marketing those as yeah. alcohols. Yeah. Okay. They've did, wanted did, to, do you know, did they kind of take it from the turkey world? I'm sure they did. They just yeah. took the same turkey frame because they were real wide. They yeah. just put the latex in, a little stronger latex. Okay. Instead of one or two thousandths latex, they jumped up to a heavier four or six thousand okay. and stretched a little different. So you're here in Idaho. Those guys are in Colorado, Colorado Oregon, Oregon, Oregon doing their mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And you're over here saying... Be quiet, guys. Don't be telling yeah, everyone about pretty, this pretty stuff. Much. You're letting my cat out of the bag pretty here. Pretty much. And, and I started bugling quite a bit with their reeds. I used their reeds, too. And, and yeah. some of them worked okay, but uh, none of them really worked perfectly. Uh, it seemed like the, you had to have them back in the roof of your mouth so darn far that you would end up gagging on them. Yeah. And they were very not really controllable for every note you wanted to hit. And you never knew if you were gonna hit a good note or a bad note. <laughs> uh, and when I first started with a mouth called diaphragm, man, it, I just didn't put it in my mouth and blow it right away. It took months yeah. before I figured it out. And uh -huh. uh, finally I got it figured out where I sounded eh, okay, but I still had my voice going. Yeah. We're up into the 80s. I was still doing pretty good with my voice. So I would use a diaphragm only when my voice failed on me. So, really? yeah, I would bugle quite a bit with my voice in the mornings, and then when yeah, I couldn't get any more out, then I'd switch the diaphragm. To me, it was better than nothing. Yeah. And, but I wasn't impressed with uh, the diaphragms really that much. I mean, they work, but they weren't perfect. Yeah. But, uh, so I, along comes the mad scientist part of you that says, I can make a better mousetrap. Yeah, you know, to back up the story, they started having local elk calling contests, right, yeah. uh, the state archery tournaments and just outfitters and guides would have a bugling contest and mm -hmm. I just started entering them just because man I seen the prizes they're giving away a new rifle a new fishing pole <laughs> sign me and up I said yeah I'm going you know and so I would bugle and win it and I'd win a new bow sometimes you know yeah. it's kind of cool and uh, kind of got the reputation out there that I could win the elk calling contest hands down and um, one day a, a guy called me and said hey I've invented an elk call and uh, I want you to look at it and give me your opinion because I've heard a lot of good about what you're doing. And I said, okay, come over. So he drives all the way from Oregon and comes over and, and I look at it and I blow it and I, my eyes lit up like, dang, he's got something here. Yeah. But it wasn't what I liked, but it was pretty darn good. Yeah. 
And I said, uh, do you mind? And he goes, what? I said, I need to cut on it a little bit. And he goes, no, don't cut on it. <laughs> I said, no, really, I'm not going to hurt it any. So I, I took the latex off and I took a little file and I filed the backing plate on there. And, and that's what made it unique was a backing plate behind the latex where most calls have nothing but just latex right. draped over. Yep. And this gave it a whole lot of control, that backing plate. Um, so I just filed on a little bit and put a little angle on it and blew it and I, right there, guy. And he goes, wow. Huh. He even blew it and thought it was pretty cool. The call hit the market with a big storm and uh, yeah. it was really good. But um, some things happened along the way, but uh, I decided that a mouth call diaphragm would, if a guy could build a mouth call diaphragm that worked as good as that or better, what a tool, right. you know, and so I was sitting there one day building some diaphragms like I had done in the past, and I had, was eating something with, with a plastic spoon, and I just, <laughs> I set that plastic spoon down on the table, and I looked at that, and I went, you know, that's what made that guy's call so good, it was a backing plate. Why can't I put a backing plate on a mouth diaphragm? So I took that spoon and cut it off and I made it the shape around that horseshoe and I put it on there. And the first time I blew it, it made a difference, but it was not good. So I filed the front a little bit and made it shorter. And, and uh, actually I had to cut it down more so it wasn't quite so high. Yeah. And I finally got it on there and glued it on there. And I, yeah. and I went, holy cow, I've got something going here. You <laughs> know, I just like, this thing is working. Well, I was a logger. I had no idea how to do anything with tool and die making or anything like that. I had yeah. no clue where to even begin. Yeah. But I was uh, also involved in outfitting at the time, and some of the guys mm -hmm. I knew come from Michigan area, and they worked for Chevrolet, okay. building tool and dies to build the cars. Right. And I just asked one day, I said, I got this here. I said, is there any way we can build that call out of metal, out of aluminum. Right. And he said, oh yeah. And I said, what kind of price are you talking? He said, oh gee. He said, yeah, maybe 50 grand, that'd be about it. And I went, 50 grand? I said, I'm looking at selling maybe 100 or 200 diaphragms a year at five bucks a pop. I said, I'll take forever to pay for that thing. So it got on the wayside. I just kind of let it set for a while. And so I was taking pieces of aluminum, you know, tin strips that you get at a, at a hardware store, yeah. laying that horseshoe on there and drawing it out and taking my tin snips and going around the outside and smoothing it up. And then I took and drilled a hole in the center took my hacksaw blade, stuck it in there, and sawed out that pallet plate on the back. And I'd bend it up, and then I'd fold it in half. And you, you weren't stamping these out. No, you were cutting them I was by cutting hand them out by hand. Mm -hmm. and a hacksaw. And I sold <laughs> hundreds of them that way to people that I knew, and I, you know, I just, and they worked. You know, uh -huh. it took, it would take me 25 minutes to build one diaphragm. You know, I had to file it because it had rough edges right. on it, yeah. and, and I'd get five dollars for it. And, you know, 25 minutes, 10 bucks an hour. Yeah. Mm. So and, and that you, was pretty good money back in yeah, the same. you weren't carrying yeah. that chainsaw up and down the hills. No, you know, <laughs> that was back in the late 80s when I started that. And uh, probably about 88, 89 when I first started that call, doing it by hand. And we started, uh, a guy told me, I better get that patented. Well, I looked into a patent, and of course the patent prices were like, holy cow, right. that's a three months wage to get yeah. a patent going for, from Solon. And uh, so I just said, okay, we're gonna bite the bullet and get a patent going. So meanwhile, I was back in Michigan uh, booking hunters at a show, and I took the diaphragms with me, my handmade ones that I was selling, and this guy walks up and he buys one, and he want, borrowed my tube and he bugled on it, and he said something like, uh, 
if I think I'm gonna take these home, start manufacturing them myself. And I said, well, I've got a patent on it. He goes, uh, I don't care about no patent. I said, well, you better. He said, well, you got $100,000 to shut me down? And I said, I'll get it. <laughs> I don't I was going, around. I'll get it. And he said, you got a million dollars to shut me down. And I was like, who in the heck are you? And he stuck his hand out and he goes, I'm Will Primo. <laughs> and I was like, who, who is Will Primo? <laughs> I, heard, I heard of Primo's before, but I didn't know Will Primo's. Yeah. You know, and so, but we, we talked quite a bit and struck up a business deal and and he showed me that, yeah, there are people and companies that are going to want to copy this. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I, I needed to get this professionally done. Yeah. Uh, I ran into a friend of mine that said he knew a, a retired browning tool and die maker, not f too far from here. So I went up and visited with him. He said, yeah. He said, I can build that for yeah, 12. And I was like, Oh, no, yeah, 12, yeah, he said 12. And I was like, oh man, 12 a whole lot better than 50,000. 50. Yeah. And uh, so I thought it over and I said, yeah, go for it. So we're gonna make a go of this because Will and I had already talked So the business dealing. Oh, Will Primos. Yes, okay. Will Primos and I had already talked and I was thinking, so you know, I've, got a, I've got a little bit of a leadway here to be able to manufacture these things and start making them. Because at that time, I thought I was gonna be building them for Will. Gotcha. You know, we hadn't discussed that part. <clears throat> so I went ahead and had him build the mold. Meanwhile, Will and I was discussing it, and uh, <clears throat> finally it come out that he was gonna build them all himself, and just he just wanted the patent. Okay. So I ended up selling the patent to him and maintaining my rights being licensed underneath Will Primo's, Primo's okay. Game Call. And they paid me the royalties on every call they made, turkey and elk. Okay. So you can imagine how many turkey diaphragm Will Primos <laughs> makes. Yeah. You know, the royalties were good. Yeah. You know, it good. supported me for a long time. But uh, anyway, I got the message from the guy that was building my tool and die, and he said, come and get it, it's ready. So I drive up there, and I'm... I'm gonna write a bum check, I guess. <laughs> I had to figure out something. I can't remember how I paid for it. I think I did go borrow the money, yeah. that's what happened. But been, that was back in, in 92. And he showed me how to work it and punched it out on a punch press. And I, this thing works cool. I mean, it's ready to go. Yeah. So I sat down to write him out a check and I started out the 12 of the zeros. And he said, no, 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 no. I said, what? And he said, I only need $1,200. Oh. It was just 12. <laughs> Not 12,000. Oh, and I said, you gotta be kidding me. He said, no. He said, I'm retired. I can't make that kind of money. The government will take it from me. <laughs> oh my goodness. So he basically oh. did it for basically nothing. He just did it because he wanted to see this thing be established and go somewhere. Yeah. And he's still alive to this day and he still works a little bit for us. We'll take it up there and he'll rebuild it and re-sharpen it and put new springs in it. And really? Yeah, he's really a sharp guy. Yeah, so 1200 versus $50,000. I got it done. Even a logger could afford to, yeah, to get yeah. it built for that yeah, price. So it didn't take long to pay for the new uh, patent, what I had paid, spent on the patent and the mold and all that. I was on a roll. Huh. And uh, so I kind of never really done a whole lot with a company the first five years, I just played with it. I didn't, yeah. didn't try to really sell into dealers and that. And then uh, Will was paying me royalties on it and check for not doing nothing every month. That yeah. was pretty darn good. Yeah, so mailbox I, money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. And, uh, huh. So I finally one day just decided, you know, I'm gonna see what I can do with this. So I went on the road, mm -hmm. stopping at all the dealers. And uh, I stopped at one dealer and he'd take 50 bucks worth. 
diaphragms, you know. This is all right. I'd drive to the next dealer and I'd get over there and he'd take 50 bucks for it. But it cost me 50 bucks in fuel to <laughs> get one of them. Going to make up for it in volume, uh, huh? Going, this is not going to work. <laughs> I proceeded to do a lot of sports shows, yeah. uh, do a lot of bugling contests. The world's come along with the REMF, and uh, we started winning a lot of them. Our family's been involved in those. And uh, between Corey, myself, my daughter, and grandson, we're right now at about 27 world championship titles. Yeah, cool. Uh, and the people that use our products also enter the contest. Right. And there's, I am guessing, way over 50 titles right now that are accredited to the use of our product. But more important to me is how many people have bought them and you're using them in the field. Right. It's incredible how many people use them and are still using them to this day and killing elk with them, calling them in. Yeah. You know, and in years past, most of the calls on the market, they would go great for like three years, maybe five years at the most, and then they just kind of wouldn't call elk anymore. And one of the things I figured out was calls that are repetitious, that make the same sound no matter who buys them, yeah. elk key in on that. Gotcha. So I designed my calls to where if you blow them or Kurt blows them or I blow them, we actually can sound different. different. And uh, a little different pitch, different sound, different technique. Yeah. And the elk just didn't key in on it. And for the last 25 years, the elk are still coming to them. Huh. Pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, Kurt, you used to do what I do. I did. I mean, you, you were a whitetail junkie from Kansas who was producing TV for a while. That's correct. How did you end up? Did, I mean, did Rocky put you in the headlock and say, come out here to Idaho, or were you already out here? What, no, you, no. Did, there's got to be a story to how you went from being a TV guy to running a, yeah. a call company. Well, it started with um, just the, the love of, of hunting. My dad started dragging me into the woods, probably because I begged him, <laughs> um, in, in, the, in the hardwoods of Kansas, where the land of the big whitetails, yeah. and... Uh, would literally put my tree stand in the woods as if I was going to hunt, but this is at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, yeah. where the legal age at that time to hunt with a bow was 14. Oh, okay. So I would literally go to the woods just like I was the guy, get in the tree. <laughs> my dad would leave me and go off a couple hundred yards with his bow to legitimately shoot a deer, and right. I sat there and just watched because I couldn't stand not being in the woods. So that gave me the passion to hunt and the passion to bow hunt. Um, okay. I literally never owned a high-powered rifle until I moved to Idaho. Really? And I was 35 years old when I moved here. So to back up just a bit, obviously the progression of big game, the allure of hunting something other than a deer mm -hmm. um, um, happened. Well, it happened that um, in 1995, a guy that worked for me at a business that I had, had a brother-in-law that lived in Pocatello, Idaho. Okay. And I said, his name was Ray. I said, Ray, we need to go, we need to go elk hunting. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it on TV and they're bugling. <laughs> These things are awesome. We got to go do this. <sighs> he says, well, I think I can set it up. My brother-in-law is an elk hunter and he lives in Pocatello. He's a policeman and, and I think we can get that to happen. So he said, I'll make a, I'll make a call. Now, granted, this is pre-internet, pre-cell oh, yeah. phone. This is yeah, the whole hard line, yeah. maybe even a dial phone for him. Dial, yeah, party the whole lines, deal. All that, so yeah. the speed of communication was minimal right. at that point. But yeah. regardless, we were on a mission. We were going to go hunting out. So he calls his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law says, well, here's the deal. I, I've never bow hunted in my life. I'm, 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 I'm a rifle hunter. You guys are both interested in the bow thing. He says, but I'll tell you what. Um, I went to police academy with a guy um, in a little town in northern Idaho called Weipe, and I said, or he says, um, 
he was a bow hunter. Let me give him a call. He's a great guy. He may, he may have an inside for you. So sure enough, the guy was unbelievably nice and didn't know a couple of, I'm talking long haired, <laughs> mullet wearing 80 guys, the rock and roll look, the diamond earring. I mean, the whole deal. Here's a couple of nutballs from Kansas coming out here looking like they ought to be, you know, kiss in retirement with no makeup. And we're going to go on this elk hunt. So I know, and the, and the guy's name is Rex Summerfield, who was who ended up being my partner in the TV show, who still is is very active in the TV world. Yeah. If you've seen the Radical Hunter, or the Hex TV show, he's he's yeah. a part of all of that. Yeah. And I know you've probably met him, and just because of the industry. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's a nice enough guy that we pull up in his driveway in early September and get out. I'm, and he's a deputy sheriff of all things. And here comes, and, these, and here comes these guys that look like they should have probably just got out of jail. <laughs> anyway, unbelievable. We struck him an, an immediate friendship. I mean, we were in his house two hours. We were looking at bear hunting videos that he'd done on VHS. And, and it just a, a lifelong friendship struck. And he took us in the woods. It was a hot week in September. We'd only give it a week. We seen one elk, and it was his butt when we were here. But that was enough for some reason, Randy, the mountains, the smell of the pines and the sun, um, just the lazy afternoons on a mountain waiting for the elk to bugle in the evening. Yeah. It just, it just became part of who I was. I went home from that trip and I told my wife, I said, you can't believe it. This is, it is beyond anything you can imagine. Next year when we go, you got to go with me. She says, okay. And I knew that would work because Rex had his wife and his little boy yeah. in the woods and it was part of the whole kind of a family deal for the week of the camp. So I drug my wife back out the next year in 96 and my little girl, who was only three at the time, uh -huh. come with us. And the same thing happened. So from 96 through 2001, we come here every September. I'm very blessed to have had a business and guys that work for me could keep things going. Yeah. But we would literally leave here on a two or three week hunt, homesick, for a place we didn't live, to go home, to our family, to everything. It just got me that bad. And, and so we worked it out that uh, in the beginning of 2001, I came out here, looked around for a way to make a living, decided I could do my uh, automotive trade here locally and make a living, and we would move, and we did. We picked up, wow. at that time, my son had been born. We picked up my, my three-year-old son, my six-year-old daughter, and we moved out here. Wow. Um, two or three years pass. Rex and my friendship flourished as well. We hunted, we hunted, we hunted. We got a chance to do a little bit of a local television production about just some ordinary guys hunting in the woods. Yeah. And we, we jumped at the chance. One thing led to the other. We got stars in our eyes and, and we were going to put TV shows <laughs> on national TV and all this. Well, that takes dollars and that yeah. takes sponsors. Uh, Along comes Rocky. We... Rocky, Rocky's a local guy, an awesome company. We had no affiliations with calls, but we loved elk hunt, so we we in, we had a conversation. I believe Rex probably con contacted you he initially, me, yeah, and and just probably gave us a sales pitch or whatever about being a part of it. Well, what Rocky bring to the table, we had no idea, was all his years in the woods. He's right. got an amazing on camera presence, um, incredibly accomplished. So. He wasn't a partner, but we took him in like he was from the get-go. And so we, we produced this show, Explorers Big Game Journal, for five years. Mm -hmm. And um, Rocky was a co-host. Um, him and I worked together a lot in the field. Rex migrated into a lot of the editing stuff. Yeah. Still did some on-camera stuff. But uh, the truth be told, Rocky and I spent a little bit more time in front of the camera than Rex just because it, yeah. our partnership worked out that way. Um, and we, we got a, a heck of a friendship and, and um, for life, obviously. Um, and then, of course... 
as everybody knows, the U.S. economy decided to take a left turn instead of a right turn, and yeah, and we uh, we suffered a blow of that. Uh, um, a lot of our companies pulled back sponsor dollars. Advertising budgets were the first thing that got cut. Oh, yeah. A couple of our major guys um, got real tough and had some bankruptcy issues, and and um, I elected at the time to um, to pull away from it. And um, just get back into the private world and do my thing for, yeah. I don't know, maybe 18 months. But Rocky and I stayed in touch. Um, and at that part in time, he had participated in the show as a sponsor and some things. And I, it, it really, I'm not going to say it was a launching pad, but it definitely put some validity into his call company. And it put it in front of some people that had never seen it. It yeah. was a vehicle to deliver it to the masses, if you will, just like, yeah. like you do. And um, so he approached me about... Um, coming on board and helping out with the sales side of the business because he says, I don't have time. I'm, I'm, it, it's busy enough. I got to make this. I got to have help. Um, my wife is awesome and she takes care of the finances and that runs that side. I just sure. have to have somebody um, with those extra hours in the day to run the sales. And he says, I know you've done that basically your whole life, some form of sales. Are you interested in doing it? And I said, yeah, I'm ready to get off the dirty clothes and get out of the construction deal and, and go yeah. back to into the hunting world. And that was back in late 2010, and um, wow. and so it's just migrated from there. We've we've worked together um, every day since then, and Rocky's been so grateful to just kind of let me bring in um, a different point of view, a different angle, a different uh, group of friends and business professionals that that I knew that he didn't from the industry, and just collaborated ideas in different um, venues to to grow the company and I've allowed, and he's continued to work on the quality and the manufacturing side and just basically gave me a, um, a, an open door to do what I needed to do to market and, and promote the company. And I'm telling you what, Randy, we have, uh, from a, from a number standpoint, our company has grown double digits every single year yeah. Yeah. since I come on board. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't want to take any credit for that. I, I'm simply saying that Rocky had a need he allowed himself to put somebody in the position. Right. It could have been me, could have been you, anybody with sales or, or and a little bit of energy. It's not rocket science, but it's just a determination to commit to it and, and work at it. And I just, I just, I was a lucky guy that got to do it. And he gave me the opportunity. And you so, said something there, a little bit of energy. <laughs> Kurt, I, I, what, what do you call a little bit of energy? <laughs> I mean, something tells me that your, your measurement of a little bit of energy is different than most guys. I, well, I, I might be odd in the fact that the success gives me just a little bit more. So every time, uh, every time that I knew we had, um, there was a plateau in an area, whether it was a, a sales with a particular vendor, whether it's a Cabela's or a, or a big box store like that, or just even a local dealer that makes the decision to bring the calls in, yeah. I feel like that's a little victory. Right. And that motivates me a little bit more to do the next one, to do the next one. So that's, that's what charges my batteries. Uh, and it, it, I might be weird in that aspect, but... Um, I think all guys that are good at at sales um, somewhat have to have yeah. a motivator. Right. And to me, that's what it is. It's yeah. just, and the cool part of it is I get to sell them something that is a dynamite product right. that works flawlessly for most all guys that have ever tried it. And I know with the utmost confidence that if- Helps people be successful. Yeah, and, and along the way, I've learned so much. I've learned- I've learned how to hunt elk. I've learned how to hunt them properly yeah. because that's another story as far as Kansas boy <laughs> trying to learn to hunt elk. Um, but just to be involved in something that has grown into the size that we are. And um, I, I'll be as bluntly honest as it can be. My goal is for us to be 
the largest seller of elk calls in all of the United States at some point in time. The world. Yeah, in the world, whatever. I mean, I just... That's the guy. I personally get up every day feeling like that. There's a possibility. I have no time frame for that because I don't want right. to. I, I don't. I'm not trying to set myself up for failure or Rocky's business. But I just feel like if we continue to work at it like we are, create the products that that we have with the quality of them that they that they are, that yeah. we can achieve that. Yeah. Well, I I don't have any doubt. I I just watch you guys from afar because people are probably connecting the last name. Rocky Jacobson and they've Corey's been on our podcast. They've seen Corey and I haunting together and so yeah, Corey and Rocky do have a relationship, uh father son relationship. So I I've got to watch this from afar for a long time and it's just been fun to watch. And I know I feel this kind of kindred connection to Rocky because coming from a logging family and my brother still being a logger, my dad was a logger. I I can't even imagine my dad trying to build a business of anything. And, and <laughs> I, I don't mean that in any bad way. He's long departed now. And, but well, let me it, tell you, it isn't me that really built the business. I built the calls. The wife did all the business work. <laughs> she really go. did. Oh. And to understand how much work she would do and really not get paid. Yeah. You know, we kind of jointly took our salary, yeah. but she spent hours and hours and hours yeah. keeping the business afloat, the part that I hated to do, and I don't know if I could have done it, you yeah. know, because I'm not really computer savvy. Yeah. I can do it, but I don't want to do it. Right. <laughs> well, it's interesting. My wife came and worked at my CPA firm for a while, and we still argue whether she quit or she got fired. <laughs> Mine retired. Oh, well, actually she quit. Hey, I, I, I now, now I'm old enough and you know comfortable enough in my own skin. I'll say, yeah, I know you quit because I was being a jerk. I, I don't blame you. You shouldn't have had to put up with that. Right, but, right. Uh, so it's, uh, it's interesting to see that. But Rocky, talking to you yesterday and you giving me the history lesson of calls, you were explaining how you feel like you're just, you've opened just the first page of a 300-page book with what you've done so far. Am I saying that right? Or well, I don't your know. Your first that. chapter? First chapter, maybe. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you've, I mean, so folks, you can't, some of you watching on TV can see this, but Rocky walks, walks around today and he's got this call and it's like he's got a picture of a map where a big bull elk is hiding. <laughs> and it, he's got it like tucked close to his vest. And he's like, look at that. And I'm thinking, uh, is he going to show me where a 350-inch bull <laughs> is or something? No, it's a new call you guys are working on. And so it's fun just to see the excitement in in his face when he's working on something like that. So how do you throttle that back? How do you not let him spill the beans? Because if we were to talk about that new call on this podcast, your phone would be ringing and Kurt would say, wait a second, that, that right. thing's not ready yet. Who's, who talked about that? Right. So. Yeah, that? Rocky and I have definitely had to um, work together on that um, in, in the recent years just because he will, that is what drives him. And he will come up with an idea and he's very passionate about it. And when he gets it, he's ready for everybody to have a piece of it. But then I have to kind of say, whoa, just a bit here. You've put me in a position to make <laughs> sure that we can sell those to as, to as many people as possible. So there is a, there is a timing to that. And um, 
so we we've worked together for all these years so that hopefully I have a bit of influence to say, okay, that's an awesome idea. <laughs> now just let me have time to let's, let's get the art guys involved in developing packaging and let's get the, the buyers out there uh, some knowledge of it so we can actually get some distribution and, and all right. that because um, that's really what's done so well for us is the distribution. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's guys in the industry, especially in this day and age, Randy, you know, that, that, uh, that probably don't, um, put the value in that as much as we do, and they and they do some direct sales stuff. Right. We're really not into that. That's not um, that's not the direction that Rocky asked me to take the business in the beginning, and that's not the that's not the route we've taken. Yeah. Um, we want the calls available in as many places for guys to walk into their local sporting goods stores, uh, local pro shops, whatever. Um, even little grocery stores in Colorado, yeah. for heaven's sake. I've, we've both <laughs> yeah. been to, yeah. like, to a little place to, to run to Colorado. It's an over-the-counter hunt. You grab your tag, and it's a right. little grocery store in the middle of nowhere, 400 people in a town. Right. Oh, there's the calls. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 what, that's, that's cool. Um, you know, in this day and age, like I said, everybody can, can buy stuff with their phone. They can buy it. And, and there's plenty of dealers out there for us that, that offer right. that opportunity. Um, but anyway, that, those kinds of things, I have to kind of restrain Rocky just a bit um, for just the idea that the people will be waiting for the next great thing from right. Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Oh, yeah. And so let's just kind of keep those things like he did today, close to the, close to the breast <laughs> and the jacket, so that then when the timing is right and, and, uh, this, and all those things come together, we can do a, a nice release and launch. We, we've, got a, we've got some products in the, in the works right now. We're working with Christy Titus, mm -hmm. um, and we've developed a line of calls for her, a bugle tube, a diaphragm, and a cow call. Um, that will be available this year, uh, yeah. ready to, to ship to stores in May. And uh, Christy does an awesome job for us. She is... Um, She's a dynamite gal, yeah. and um, you got Corey's. You, you get, I, I'm looking at the signature lines here. You got Corey's calls. You got Rocky's calls. Got Steve Chapels. Yeah, Steve's a Steve's so, an animal uh, down in yeah. the in the desert states, Colorado, New Mexico, yeah. Arizona. I mean, he's what Steve Chapel is one of the most well known outfitters and uh, elk guru, guru yeah. of that country down there. I yeah. mean, people respect him. He, he's made the videos, uh, extreme elk videos. And yeah. yeah. He's, it's hard to do an elk calling search on YouTube or something and not, but, not run across something Steve oh, Chappell's sure. done. Um, and yeah. that's, I mean, Rocky recognized that years ago. And, <clears> and Rocky, uh, Steve came to you with an idea for a call and Rocky's expertise and they worked it out. And now we, now we produce um, five different products for Steve. We do two cow calls and, and three diaphragms. Huh. <laughs> and Corey's, Corey's line, we've got a, a bugle tube, um, a cow call, a diaphragm, a couple new things in the works with Corey as well, yeah. and this new stuff with Christy. So, um, Rocky's got his own stuff, obviously. We've got the Who's Your Daddy, that's his signature series stuff, and mm -hmm. obviously the Bully Bull and some of those inventions, Selectable. The original Raging Bull the diaphragm. original Raging yeah. Bull diaphragm, yeah. So yesterday when, when I was here, we we started to talk about products and everything kept drifting to hunting stories, Rocky. We didn't get hardly anything done because we sat around telling hunting stories. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It, it is to me. And I, I wish we would have had the podcast running yesterday because those were some of those stories you have and some of the ways that you came to this idea or that idea. I... I don't know how, you, I mean, so, so you got this spring in one of your calls, the VET calls, mm -hmm. right? Yes. What was it called? Volume Enhanced? Volume tone. Enhanced Tone Technology. So 
<laughs> I had to look at Kurt like his Rocky jerking my chain here because I thought this was the biggest line of BS. But you you walked into like a little dollar store or something? It was actually a, like a Toys R Us store. Okay. In fact, it was a Toys R Us store in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> And at the time, I was thinking of how to build another grunt tube, smaller, more compact, but yet had the quality sounds of your bigger tubes. Yeah. Bigger tubes, you'll never, ever beat the top-notch quality sound of them. But they are kind of a little bit cumbersome to carry. But if they work, I'm going to carry them. Right. Um, but I was always trying to figure out how to build that tube just a little smaller and with good quality sound. And I was in the store with the grandkids, and they were running around, I want this, I want that, you know. Yeah. Not that bad, but they were, you know, that's kids. Being kids. And there was a box there on sale of products, and I looked at it and said, what the heck is that? And I picked one up, and I said, it's a microphone. And I was looking for the switch, you yeah. know, and there's no switch on it. And I stuck my mouth, and I talked, and it just reverberated my volume right back out in the air. And I was like, how in the heck was that work? Yeah. You know, and I thought... Ah, there's something that could be designed in an elk tube if I can figure out what it is. So I bought one. Yeah. And I took it home and took it apart, and here's a coil spring inside that thing that vibrates when you're talking, and it reverberates that sound back in a, in a volume sense. And uh, <laughs> I could tell there was a different, a different pitch to my voice even when I talked into it. Uh -huh. It wasn't my regular, kind of like talking on the phone, you listen to yourself on the phone and don't sound right. like you. Yeah. Well, I could tell instantly that there was a different pitch in my voice too. So I got to work and bought some springs from the local hardware store and started screwing them into the mouthpieces and messing with them and get the right distance and that. And I went and bought a, a meter to register the different sounds and the volume. decibel meter. decibel meter. Okay. And uh, it was almost incredible how much difference it made. And he's not kidding about the springs. I mean, he literally had, oh. if he had one, he had two dozen different <laughs> lengths, diameters, yeah. tensions. tensions. It was amazing. Just trying to figure out the one that would vibrate mm -hmm. the best for elk sound. Yeah. Some of them vibrated really good, but not to create a good elk sound. Yeah. They created a mouse sometimes, <laughs> squeaky little sound. Some of them went boing, you know. <laughs> when you talk into them. And so I had to figure out how to keep it quiet and still get the vibration out of it. And so it took a while, uh, yeah. but I finally figured it out. And we now have that in a mouthpiece of a grunt tube, along with changing the end of it, making the plastic or the rubber tube tamer we used to have on the outside goes on the inside now, mm -hmm. which deepens up the bass sound when you're coming off into okay. your grunts and chuckles. But the spring will increase the volume 25% over without it in the, uh, the tube at all. And the neat thing was it vibrates and stabilizes your octave changes. So when you go up the staircase, you don't lose those octave changes as easy. Okay. It kind of creates them on its own a lot easier. It builds back pressure, which back pressure goes back into your mouth to make that reed vibrate. It takes less air to make the call work then. Uh, meanwhile, I hit the high note with that spring and it just intensified that high note, which animals key in on. Yeah. Uh, even turkeys, uh, predators, when you hit those high squeaky notes, especially like a yelp, 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 hit that yeah. high note, they'll key in on that faster than they will the, the deeper sounds. Huh. And 
if you ever noticed uh, when you're bugling with diaphragms in a grunt tube and you go to that high notes, most of the time it, it was there, but it had a tendency to fade a little bit. And uh, I wanted that intensity to stay there. And when I put that spring in there, it just increased that intensity. And we've used that call for two years now. And the first year was prototype handed out to the pro staffers and uh, I had it to 13 guys, 12 elk died to that that year. Wow. Out of the 13, and the 13th guy had five bulls called in with it and he missed every one of them. <laughs> every one of them. Thanks, uh, thanks Tex. <laughs> all because you went to Toys R Us with your grandkids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that's the epitome of a mad scientist. <laughs> but, so, to, to the benefit of the audience, now that they know kind of the history of how you got into this, and I'm sure as we talk more, there's going to be little added tidbits of history and insight to, to how you got to this. But I'm, I'm like everybody else. I, getting an elk to come to, I don't know, 80 yards doesn't seem to be all that difficult. But trying to get them from 80 to 30... Mm-hmm. That's about five feet. Oh, well, well, I, I don't know. That, that's, <laughs> I would probably wet my pants and mess if they got that close. But uh, So uh, when we were talking about this yesterday, and that's why I, I thought about it last night. You know, there, there's things that people do wrong consistently, and I'm sure I do a lot of them wrong. Whenever I'm with somebody who is the maestro of calling elk, I'm paying attention because if I if there's a place where I've cut my teeth and spent most of my time out hunting, a lot of it is rifle hunts, uh, post rut, late season stuff. I I love chasing elk. I I chase elk every <laughs> September, but I'm certainly not going to hold myself out as the expert on it. Uh, if there's five things that people do wrong, guys like me, what what are we consistently probable? If you were to analyze from afar and say, well, here's what you did wrong. And I'm saying this because you've killed an elk, at least one elk with your bow since when? Uh, 1972. So 40, uh, you're gonna tell 45 how old I years, <laughs> 45 years yeah. in a row, you've killed at least one, one sometimes, sometimes more. Uh, sometimes up to three, yeah. depending on how many states I get to hunt. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to say that puts you in the place of being an expert, Rocky, as much as you don't want to <laughs> mention it. So I, and Kurt and I were talking about this yesterday because I came from his background of being a whitetail hunter. I grew up in the Midwest in Minnesota. When I came out West, I made every mistake possible in my first six years of elk hunting. And I finally shot one the first day of the seventh year. <laughs> is like you hit the average did i yeah <laughs> is that is that what it takes pretty much one uh, elk every six years is the average what most people kill elk yeah. one every six years and so the point I'm, I'm making in that is i made every mistake possible if, if there's a dumb mistake to make while elk hunting i made it in, in reflection now that i've killed lots of elk it's like what the heck was I thinking? <laughs> and uh, so back to a long way to ask this question. If there's like five things that you see people do, what is it that when they go into the elk woods, it's either because of how they've prepared or not prepared or what their minds have? Are there common things that you see? Yeah, you know, if, um, 
to back up a little bit, if you are a beginner hunter, first time going out there, of course, you're going to learn how to call. Mm -hmm. And uh, the biggest problem we see out there is people kind of have a tendency to put the call in the drawer and not even touch it till the day before they go hunting. Yeah. And they get out there and they have no confidence in what they can do with a the call. They haven't practiced enough to get the right sounds at the right time. And uh, so I'm going to say practice is one of the biggest faults that I see out there, not willing to do it as much as they can to, right. to learn how to do it and have confidence in your calls yeah. to know that they're going to work. Um, the second one is probably when they do learn to call, now they're excited. Yeah. So they run up and down every ridge bugling and calling every five seconds, five minutes, whatever, <laughs> expecting that bull to just come running in. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work that way. You've got to hunt these animals and you've got to figure out where they're at and use some strategy in your hunt and set up scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, figure out what's going on. If the weather's really cold, the animals are going to be out moving more. If it's hot, they're going to be in the darker timber and uh, just figure out what's going on with your hunt at that particular time. But I've seen guys out there get out of the pickup and bugle and the bull answer and they'll call that bull right up to the road. And, uh, you know, when they see the human in the pickup and you just yeah. educated an elk again, you know. <laughs> Gotta, you got to kind of be a little smart about it. That's wrong yeah. driving the roads and bugling, but don't call him up unless you plan on shooting sure, him. Right. <laughs> you know, but uh, calling too much is not a good thing. I'd rather call just enough to keep their attention yeah. and calling at the right time. For example, you may have a bull answer, and if you keep calling and calling and calling, he knows exactly where you're at, so he's going to keep coming without saying anything. Right. He doesn't have to stop and go, all right, where are you? Yeah. And by, by the time he gets there, he's already circled you and he's already winded you because he knows where you're at okay. and uh so calling's too much i like to make him on the curiosity side of things okay. try to figure out okay exactly where was he now so i'm gonna bugle to find out where that sound come from and then you got to play the game of keeping the wind in your favor while that bull's coming in yeah and uh, i the next thing that the third one would be not setting up in the right spot for that situation. For any yeah. situation, yeah. you know, a lot of guys, they'll bugle and instantly drop to their knees right where they're at and thinking that bull will come there. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, you got to look around and figure out what the wind is doing, what the terrain is, so you know where to set up to get a good shooting lane. And you just can't just drop there and think that bull's going to come all the way. Uh, and that leads into the fourth thing, uh, being not being aggressive enough at the right time. At the right time. Yeah. Uh, you're better off to be more aggressive than not aggressive. Okay. Yeah. Get in their face. Get in their bedroom. Kick the bedroom door down, as I like right. to say. What, what do you mean by that when you say kick the bedroom door down? <clears throat> Let's give you an example. You've got 20 cows and a couple satellites, and you've got a big old herd bull. Yeah. And they're out there, and they're kind of hanging up in the trees, and they're not really doing anything but maybe bugling once in a while, but nothing really drastic, and then all of a sudden they kind of bed down. And uh, nothing's going on much. So you have bugled so far, and all of a sudden they've just shut down. Well, if you keep bugling your way in, they don't like that. They keep, here he comes, so they either just shut totally up or they get up and leave. One or the other. So you're better off getting right into that edge of that where they're bedding down, where all that sound come from, getting as close as you can and as quiet as you can without making any sounds at all. No cow calling, no bugling. So when you say as close as you can, get within 100 yards, get within 70 oh, yards? Gee. What, you know, depends? I would say minimum 100 yards. Oh, okay. uh, you know, try to get that away. Uh, 
But it depends on what you're looking at as far as training and brush and stuff. If right. you can get away with movement and getting in without some eyeball of another cow spotting you, I'd try to get in 50 yards. Okay. You know, as close as you can. And then you get set up. If you're, if you're by yourself, it's a different ball game than if you got a hunting partner with you. Right. So your hunting partner, he should advance out 20, 30 yards in front of you downwind and... Uh, boy, hammer that elk right out of his bed, just blow it right in his face. And it's kind of like, I gave you an example the other day of if you're laying in your own bed and all of a sudden you hear the back door creak, you kind of set up in bed and kind of take notice. Yeah. But uh, go back to sleep because yeah. it didn't really do much. And all of a sudden you hear it creak again. You go, hmm, what the heck was that? Eh, nothing. You know, and all of a sudden... You know, the bedroom door flies open and you jump out of bed instantly. You're, you're defending yourself. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens with elk. When you get so close to them and then you just catch them off guard and, and blow a bugle at them right there real close, they jump up and come to see what the heck it is. But if you work your way in slowly bugling, gives them time to think. Go, I don't know if I really want to mess with this today right. or something. But surprise attack's always better. Okay. You know, okay. catch them off guard. Huh. Kick the bedroom door in. Yeah, huh? yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll, it's a good analogy, I guess. It, it is. I, I'm I'm thinking that one through because a lot of times I'll just stay back there 200 yards and I'm like, well, why won't he come any closer? Mm -hmm. There is times a bull will come a long ways, but it's very few times. Yeah. Most of the time you've got to be within a certain distance and they have challenge points, especially a herd bull. He knows that he can run out so far and he does it because he doesn't leave his cows very far because as soon as he gets out too far, another bull comes in. Yeah. So he may run out 50, 75, 100 yards, maybe you know, on, on a good average away from the cows because he knows he can keep track of what's going on behind him. So you got to kind of figure those points out. And a lot of times when uh, the elk are pretty much done for the day and they bed down, uh, you got the herd bull, he'll actually do a triangular point walk around his cows. Sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes he'll, especially when they first bed down, he'll bugle a lot trying to keep uh, the satellite bulls awarded off. He wants them to stay away. Yeah. And once he does his little triangular point run around his cow, then he settles down and beds down and is pretty much over with. But he's made his point that I'm going to tell you guys to stay away from my cows. Okay. And so, if you, so if his cows are bedded in a group, he's kind of like pacing a triangle mm -hmm. around what that group is making some noise, letting the other bulls know, hey, mm -hmm. this is kind of like the boundary. Exactly. There's no offense here, but you come in here and you might be in for a serious thumping. Yes, exactly. So that's something that I have learned to do is get in between those points. Like you're hearing them bugle. And sometimes I thought, oh, there's three bulls up there. Yeah. But it's the same bull. He just went over here to the left and bugled, went down the bottom bugle, went back up to the top and bugled. And if he does that a couple times, you can figure out, okay, I'm going to try to slip in between those two points because he's more apt to come in between those two points and slip out of that radius area and you got a chance of, of taking him in. Yeah. But you got to be careful of the wind though. Yeah. That wind is so touchy that time of day. Yeah. So. Well, folks, if you hear the, these noises, we are in your shop. Yeah. They're, they're building calls as we're talking right now. So apologize for any phones or presses pumping out, mm -hmm. uh, diaphragm frames or whatever, but those, those are interesting points, Rocky, and I think Kurt and I can relate to this because uh, when you have the, the, you have a certain mindset of how to be successful when you're whitetail hunting, some of that applies in general to any hunting, 
whether it's right. uh, you can apply it to elk hunting or to antelope hunting or bear hunting, whatever. But you quickly find out that, yeah, some of these general principles apply, but there are a lot of nuances. And for me, it was, I was trying to walk through the woods and get close to elk that are walking at seven or eight miles an hour. And I'm tippy-toeing through the woods and all of a sudden they're three miles yeah. ahead of me and I lost yeah. them. Yeah. Or I was worried about sound. Well, fortunately, some guy just <laughs> said, you ever hear a group of elk walk through the woods? And I'm like, uh, yeah, it's noisy. Well, don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. Get going. If you're going to yeah. be there, get there. I mean, there's, there's just this whole list of things for for those of us who, who came from that background uh, that I... You probably watch it, Rocky. Having grown up in Idaho and hunted elk all your life, you probably look at some of us convert converts. <laughs> well, you know, I, I outfitted. Yeah, I do sometimes. But I, you know, I was an outfitter for 13 years, and I actually guided for other outfitters several times in my off seasons from logging. Mm. And uh, that was one of the biggest things that I seen when we got an Easterner. Uh, come out. We call them flatlanders. Yeah, well, that's a good term <laughs> yeah. for it. And uh, they get out there, and and you know we'd be hunting along, and all of a sudden you hear an elk bugle. Man, he'd hide right now, and I'm going, <laughs> "Come on, let's go." I go, "No, no, no." He said, "I gotta stay here." I said, "No, let's go." So, and I'm going to tell you a story that happened with one of my clients that I had. Um, I'm going to say his name because he'll love it if he hears this because <laughs> he remembers this truly. His name is David Burdett and he's from West Virginia. Uh-huh. He comes out and he, he's a, a whitetail hunter. Yeah. Totally. I mean, a good one. Yeah. So we're walking through the woods and we got a bull bugling up on the hill 300 yards away and we're walking. He goes, well, what are you doing? You're walking through the trees and they're going to see you. I go, yeah, I said, they're not going to pay attention. I'm bugling. They think it's an elk coming. So we're walking along. All of a sudden, he grabs me by the arm. He said, don't move, don't move. I go, why? He said, there's a cow elk looking at you. And I look up, and yeah, there's a cow looking down there. And I said, you want to shoot him? And he goes, no, I want that bull. And I go, forget the cow then. So we walk, and the cow busts off and <laughs> runs up the hill. And pretty soon, a bunch more cows come running up. And I said, watch this. So I run right at the cows, and they bust over the hill. And when they bust over the hill, I let out a bugle. And that bull was mad because I got between him and his cows. Okay. And I said, Dave, get over there by that tree and sat right there. Here come the bull. Boom, boom, boom. Walked right up, eight-yard frontal shot. Tunk, over with. <laughs> you know, that's being aggressive. Right. Yeah. And uh, you just got to play that game. You know, sometimes you got to be careful about the warning barks from cows. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you run right directly at a, a bunch of elk, they don't usually stop to do the warning bark. It's when they don't quite know what's going on, they can't see it, right. or they smell something out of place is when they do the warning barks. But yeah. if you can just bust them right now, they run. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I've never done that yeah. before. Yeah. Well, I, I think if, if there's one thing people underestimate on elk, at least I did, I... I thought they were more visual, and they are visual to some degree, but I thought, oh, they, they don't have a good nose. White tails have a good nose. Oh, they no, their noses are tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> you, you make that mistake enough times, and you're like, mm, I guess they do have a pretty good nose, yeah. and, and it's yeah. so hard to keep a consistent wind in the yeah. mountains. Yeah, It's crazy. And they'll play that wind to their advantage. They know the terrain will bring a draft of air down to clear to the bottom and around the mountain and up the other yeah. side to them. They know that. They know that, and right. they play that. And you can be standing there, and the wind's going to your right, and you're going, ah, it'll never get to them. And all of a sudden, it hits another pocket in the bottom, yeah. a little hot air like the sun shining on that, <laughs> right up the hill to them, and they're out of here. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how many times that has happened to me. And I'm like, how did they know that wind was going to be changed when I got over to this face? Well, yeah. they live there. Yes, yeah. they do. That's what they spend 
24 hours a day doing, trying to stay alive on yes. that landscape. Eh? Right, that's their instinct for survival. Oh. Yeah, and they're just so cagey with that wind. Yeah. You know, the sight and sound, you can get away with a lot more than you think, but yeah. when it comes to the wind, yeah, that's 100% there <laughs> yeah that's yeah. i would say that's probably always my biggest mistake and I, i'm even walking around with my wind checker all the time and and actually i've had some people in the in other parts of the country watch our show and say email me what was that thing you were squeezing it's a wind checker I, in the mountains i i just i can't i i can't go without it because right. it just yeah. and even the winds can be so subtly different but without a wind checker, you'd, it's not like you can feel it on your skin. Or, yeah. or the, you know, I even watch what the sun is doing. Yeah. And because you may be standing in a shady little draw and your wind's going to your right, and if that sun is hitting that knob just to the right of you, sometimes your wind will hit that and just pick up and just phew, right back up the hill where the elk's at. Right. So you kind of got to play that game of watching all your terrain all around you and what the wind could do and what it does do. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and for me, that was just a, a learning experience that came of time in the woods, mm-hmm. in the mountains. I mean, I, I couldn't replicate that wind pattern change where I grew up in flatter ground. Yeah. And just, well, there's always a prevailing wind. Yeah. In the Midwest, there's yeah. always West, a prevailing wind. Get ready. It's, that's yeah. where it's coming. It always is. Yeah. It yeah. usually lays down, at least in the fall, it did where I grew up, um, in the evening mm-hmm. and come up with kind of with the sun in the morning. Yeah. So you always had those wonderful, pristine 45 minutes to an hour at the end and the beginning of each day. But any other time it was going to blow. It just doesn't matter how hard. Yeah. Was it 20 mile an hour today or 35? You know? <laughs> that's, a, 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 that's a Kansas issue though there. Kurt. Yes, it I, is. That, that's like Dorothy and Toto are flying by. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that, that's always funny when I moved out here where they would actually give a wind warning when the wind got above 35 or something. I'm like, where I grew up, they didn't even get nervous till it was over 50. <laughs> it was just an average day. So different, different part of the world. Well, I'm sure in your hunting, when I mean, now that you've been here, you're immersed in it, you, you do it, you hang out with, you know, the kind of guys like Rocky sure. who are so generous in their teachings. I'm sure there's some things along the way where you said, why didn't I, why, why? that's what now seems like common sense. Cause a lot, when I asked for those top five things, Rocky, I think people who elk on it a lot would say, well, that's kind of common sense. Well, for me, it wasn't that common of sense when right. I first started, but yeah, now I look back at it and all the things he said, I'm like nodding my head. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. I get that. Sometimes but, the basics is the most important. Yeah. <laughs> and I always thought there was some shortcut. That was my biggest problem. Once I got frustrated because I didn't have the mindset of how hard public land elk hunting could be. And I'm thankful that I didn't stumble into some dumb luck along the way because then I would have thought it was easier Easy. than it yeah. really is. So I'm, I'm kind of grateful that I had to struggle and wrestle and just make yeah. a fool of myself. <clears throat> um, but... I then went through this phase of thinking, well, if I buy this doodad or that gadget or I need new boots or I need a new rifle or a new bow, I'll kill one then. No, (laughs) none of that. None of it changed the fact that I just did not understand elk well enough. Right. Yeah. The other other big factor is uh, people aren't willing to go deep and hard yeah. they, they want to go easy and we're you know, I see elk here on the flat they got to be here well they're there feeding during the night but in the, when it comes daylight they're going to the roughest toughest 
mm-hmm. uh, canyon they can find hillside to bed on. It's uh, your northeastern slopes, and you got to be, be willing to go into those canyons. And then once you shoot one, you got to be willing to pack it out. Too, right. That's you know? that's the hard and, part. Uh, it uh, is. And and one of the hard parts is developing that mindset that this isn't going to be easy. Right. It, yeah. It's You're earn it. Yeah. But boy, the rewards are great. That's it. And I, we were filming in Colorado last year, and I shot a bull, and it took Marcus and I two days. Out, so we shot it, and then it took two extra days to get it out of that hole. I'm, I'm not shooting one in that hole ever again, but <laughs> we pointed some elk out to people who had tags, and they were in much easier places than where I'd shot that bull. And they said, no, I, I don't need one that bad. I'm like, what else are you going to do for the next day yeah, or two? Yeah, yeah. Sit around camp, drink beer, and tell stories? I yeah. mean, this is what you came for. This, right. but that's, think, that's part of the hunt. Yeah. I mean, without that, it's nothing. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. uh, just, I, I hear as many people tell me stories about how brutal it was to get in, to pack in there, or most often how brutal it was to get the elk out. And, and you can tell that that, that part of the hunt was an important part of the story. To yes, me. very so, memorable. Yeah, and, and I think once you do it a few times, then you mentally accept that you know this is part of public land elk hunting. Mm-hmm. And and I I don't have any problem with private land elk hunting. It's just that most of my audience is going to be hunting on public land, and you have to have this mental mindset that about the time you're ready to quit is the time you should just be getting excited. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but My, myself personally, I've never hunted uh, on private ground where I've paid for it. Yeah. If somebody invites me to hunt their ranch and lets yeah. me do it for free, heck yeah, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> but there's so much opportunities on public land. And uh, yeah, you're not going to kill maybe the biggest bull on public land, yeah. but it's, it's cheaper. The rewards are better. You can pat yourself on the back because it's a job that's hard to, to accomplish. Right. You know, on private ground, sometimes it's a, it can be easier because they aren't hunted by everybody right. all day long. The only thing that I can see on private ground is if you bump them out and leave to the next guy's private ground, you have nothing on that piece of ground. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that happens. So that makes it oh, tough yeah. for people that do hunt private ground. But yeah. um, I, I'm going to have to say that 99% of the elk I've ever killed is all on public land. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a trophy hunter. Yeah. I love to kill big bulls. Right. But if a, if a bull comes in, then like I say, if he bugles, he deserves to die. <laughs> <laughs> and he does say that. <laughs> and uh, I'm a meat well, hunter. Yeah. Well, and I love that thrill of beating that elk on his own game. Yeah. Well, I've had the pleasure of interacting with and hunting with quite a few Idaho elk hunters. And I often, you just, it's kind of like Roosevelt elk hunters in Oregon. They're a different breed. And then I come over here and I'm driving in into your lovely little valley here. And I'm looking at these steep, ugly, nasty canyons. And Marcus and I are driving in and, and Marcus, he's hunted a lot of elk and he grew up in Montana. And we both looked at each other like, you Idaho guys, Idaho guys, you can have this stuff. <laughs> Which it kind of explains to me why most Idaho guys I know, they, they don't even blink at some ugly, nasty place. It's like full speed ahead, damn yeah. the torpedoes. Yeah. And I guess if you grow up hunting here, 
it's pretty it's mostly public land around here isn't it oh it, my it looks like it. It's yeah just about all, yeah a lot everything. lots of public land yeah. it's, it's, i'm not, don't know what the percentage is but i'm going to say 70 percent of idaho is probably public land hunting. yeah i'm sure it's yeah. close to that and if you guys are diving off these ridges down into those canyons as thick and nasty and rocky as they are yeah sometimes two and three miles deep you Straight up. Are, you guys are earning these out. <laughs> it, it, it usually takes a bugle or something to make you commit. Because yeah, when you, yeah. when you so, commit, that's your day. Right. I mean, when you drop down into some of these, I mean, you know it's it's the afternoon before you're out of there. Yeah. And uh, So, so do you guys have this dynamic then where you got a group of people who say, you know what, I'm not going down there. I'm not going up there. And those are the ones who are continually, oh, the wolves ate all the elk or the hunting pressure this. And then you guys go down there or climb up there and you're like, man, we kind of got it to ourselves. This, this isn't yes. bad hunting. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That happens a lot, you know, and the elk have uh, learned to live with the wolves and are going into places even steeper than what we used to hunt. Yeah. Getting into the bluffy areas, the rocks and uh, shale rock hillsides where... Wolves won't go. Yeah. They, they can't manipulate the elk, so they just stay away. And, yeah. uh, elk figure that out, just like yeah. they figure it out with hunting pressure. Yeah, that's like, thing. Where can I stay alive? Mm -hmm. Or, or yeah. at least increase my likelihood of staying alive. Yeah. Last year, Rocky and I were hunting southern Idaho together and um, literally watched two bulls and half a dozen cows, five cows, whatever it was, go up over the top of a broken shale mountaintop that literally looked like the only animal that would be there was a was a, a ram or a mountain goat. I mean, there you couldn't have, I would have bet a week's pay that an elk won't go through that. I mean, it wouldn't even look for it. And we literally just heard um, the rocks moving and shuffling. We got up over the ridge and looked and there they went over the top. I, I So, man, can they adapt. Yeah. Unbelievable. I have yeah. no idea why they would be there, but they were just at home there. Well, they were betting there because they could. They knew that nothing could come in above them to get them, and they could see everything coming like they oh, did with us. Right. And all they had to do is just bust up through those little rock slides, and we would have had to have ropes to climb up there ourselves. <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't know how they got through it, but they did. Uh, Incredible. Crazy stuff. Uh, so you've hunted, I'm going to ask both of you this, you guys have hunted elk in many places, many states. Um and I've been lucky, you know, getting to do what I do. And even before the TV show, I started hunting all these other states, uh, mostly because I thought my marriage depended on it. <laughs> I had to get out of the house two or three months out of the year or, or my wife was going to, she's, I've had enough of you, I'm gone. So I kind of used hunting as a, a marital therapy thing <laughs> for giving my wife some time to herself. But I, in the fortune of doing that, one of the things I found is there's still a part of me that loves coming back to where I first made all my elk hunting mistakes. Uh, I, I, and I know I'm not going to find bulls the size of what I might see in Utah or Nevada or New Mexico or wherever it might be. Do you guys have a favorite place where where you guys like to hunt elk? And, and I'm assuming this is archery hunting that, yeah. that you well, guys would want to do. You know, anytime you know the ground and you're familiar with it, know the habits of your animals, it's always the best place to go. Because yeah. anytime you go to a new state, you got to learn all that stuff again. Yeah. And uh, I spent a lifetime learning Idaho. Yeah. So I'm going to have to say Idaho is my favorite because I know the country. 
And I have hunted enough other states. I feel that the Idaho elk are more aggressive in their calling and coming to you. Really? And it's partly because it's thicker, brushier here. They can't yeah. just look over a 300 <laughs> yards and go, I don't see an elk standing by that brush. Right. You know, they have to come to investigate. And they got so many different draws and crooks and crannies for the thermals to change. They're, they're more comfortable about coming to you because they know they'll have that wind in their favor. Where on the flat desert, the wind primarily goes one way. Right. You know, and those elk can see visually and they aren't apt to come as as easy as they do here. Huh. I've hunted Oregon a lot too and, and Oregon is more open country yeah. and they bugle, but they don't come in as good. They do eventually sometimes, you know, but in Idaho, they just seem to be more aggressive. They, really? they always have. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I noticed too, and even Canada, I've hunted up there. It's pretty thick brush, you know. It may not be as steep up there, yeah. but a thicker cover, the elk come right to you. Yeah. You know, sometimes you don't get a shot because you can't shoot through the brush at six feet sometimes. <laughs> but, but the thrill of having an elk right next to you, even though if you can't shoot him, tearing the brush up and just blowing slobbers all over you. <laughs> that's it is that's cool. hard to replicate. Cool. Kurt, you had a... I would, I, would, I would agree with Rocky. I don't necessarily have any particular, say, valley or ridge, but um, what he says is, is 100% true. There's been more than a half a dozen times in my life, whether it's been Rocky and I hunting together or somebody else, that um, literally have called an elk into inside of 10 yards at full draw, and you literally can't get a shot. But what that translates to is you... The, the thicker the cover, the more aggressive the elk is to you, the more aggressive you can hunt. Yeah. And that comes back to um, what makes it more fun. Because Rocky and I have discussed this for the last decade. We would rather go out in a morning and um, find an elk that was willing to play, yeah. willing to bugle and willing to communicate and chase that elk for four hours and probably not kill him yeah. than to go out of a morning, see 50 elk on a hillside and sneak up and shoot one. Yeah. Now that'll kill you. That'll kill your elk. It'll fill your freezer. Right. But the reason that we elk hunt, that's not the reason we elk hunt. We can do that with rabbits. We can do that with anything. Yeah. But the hunt, you know, one of the largest deer in the world that right. screams at the top of his lungs, he gets cross-eyed, he's got slobber, all that. <laughs> that's what's cool. And yeah. so when you hunt this country where we live and it's so thick, you can make more noises. You can snap sticks. You can break trees. You can run. Literally, I mean, I've, I've got hunting scenarios. My first six-point bull I ever killed, I was hunting with my, my buddy Rex, and he literally was, no joke, Randy, he was running through the woods with, a, with one of Rocky's Who's Your Daddy cow calls, mimicking an estrus cow, running, and this six-point bull comes in from behind and chases him right past me at six yards. He stops on opening <laughs> and I put an arrow in him. And he, he was literally in a 40-yard circle running back and forth, making noise like an elk in estrus with another bull chasing it. And this other big bull comes in to dominate that situation. I get to kill it. That's, I mean, yeah. that stuff, you know, that's dreams come true right there. How, how, and, how? and the thick country warranted, allowed that. Now, if right. we tried that in the wide open flats of yeah. Montana or New Mexico, it's, it's not going to happen. Right. They're but gonna... in this country... That can happen on that given day. Huh. Wow. That's so that explains why. I, I mean, Corey, when I, I've hunted with him, he's one of the most aggressive elk hunters I've ever hunted with. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm tagging along, taking notes. I don't know where he learned that from. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do now. I mean, looking at the terrain and what you just explained there, Kurt, it makes complete sense to me now. And I'm thinking, man, we're going to scare every elk out of here. But no, no. We, no, we didn't. We had tons of encounters. Well, and- just think, Randy, if, if that elk was running through the trees at 20 yards and he's just a flash of colors and things to you, mm-hmm. you're the same to him. That's you run true. through and you're camo and, and you're making sounds like an elk and you sound like an elk and he can just see pieces and parts of you until you stand there and he can actually see you in full form and figure out you're not the shape of what I, my mind tells me is an elk. He thinks you are one. Yeah. He's going to run and chase and <laughs> interact with you and never be, never think anything other than the fact that that's an elk running to make a noise and make an elk sounds. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've seen Rocky do situations in this country where it was another thing I had to learn. I would always get, as soon as things got real close, I'm getting behind a tree right. and I'm going to oh. go, I'm going to get a little bit hit. That's the last thing Rocky does. He steps in front of that tree. Yeah four feet or whatever, uses as a backdrop in the wide open so that he's now 180 degrees in any direction where that bull is, stops and gives him that shot, he can take it. There's not a limb in the way, there's not any obstruction, and he uses it as a backdrop instead of you and I that would typically say hides because you can't let him see you. That's that's that that mindset of being aggressive and, and, and putting yourself in a completely different place than you would to hunt a whitetail or something. Yeah. It, 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 call it aggressive, call it whatever, but I learned that from Rocky early on is like stop putting yourself, even if you just put the tree to, to your right shoulder, you've just eliminated your opportunity to shoot over here. Yeah. It's gone. But if you're in front of it, now there's nothing to impede your opportunity to shoot. Yeah. And you get elk going and coming and, and they just they always seem to kind of peer through you or associate you with a part of it and yeah. outside of just literally drawing when they can see it. And sometimes I've seen that happen where you can literally, they're so mesmerized by what's going on, you can literally just draw and right. shoot before they, <laughs> before they react. You try yeah. that with a deer, he's going to jump 10 feet up in the gone. air, spin dirt on you and be gone. Yeah. But not always an elk. Sometimes, but not always. Wow. But that's one of the biggest keys to, to a setup is kind of in your own mind, playing the game out. Okay, if the bull comes over there, you range it, go 20-yard shot. If he comes over there, you range a 30-yard shot. You're checking the wind too, and you go, okay, the wind is going predominantly to my right. That's probably where he's gonna come in at. And uh, you look for those shooting lanes. But one of the other big mistakes that I'm gonna uh, put on you right now is when people bugle, they stay put. You don't do that. Because they can pinpoint you to the inch. I don't care if they're a mile away, they know what tree you're behind. Yeah. And if you stay there, they come in and they'll circle that. But what I like to do is what we call the half moon drive. And that means I bugle if I'm by myself, I bugle cow call, whatever I need to do right there. And then I go downwind, out 40 yards, whatever I can get away with before the bull gets there. And I'm now gonna ambush him. Yeah. I'm downwind of where I call from. I know he's gonna sweep into that radius. He comes in, and he's, if so what if he hangs up at 50 yards from the sound? I'm 30 yards closer. Right. I got a 25-yard shot now. And that's, that's something really interesting, Rocky, because a lot of times we are hunting by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Or for me, I'm hunting with a camera guy. And it's not like I can leave the camera guy 80 yards away right. and say, you sit over here and call. I'm going to sneak downwind because mm-hmm. we're not going to get, get it mm-hmm. on film. Nope. So a, a lot of times I... I'm stuck with that. Okay, what? he's responding to me. It sounds like he wants, or sometimes you can hear him coming. It's like, uh-oh, I, I got him coming, but I don't want to stay here because I yeah. know he, he, he knows, knows where I'm at. Right. 
So I try to move, I try to whatever, and sometimes it works, sometimes yeah. it, it doesn't. Yeah, and you're right, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't. but it's, it still yeah. makes for a good day. Oh, it's, and we were talking about this yesterday too, when you were given the, just trying to explain the purpose of your calls is to try to get some of this vibration that you feel. The realism. Kind of, yeah. I, I tell people in all the seminars I do, all the, the, the anything I do about elk hunting, it's like, even though you might be a rifle hunter, even though maybe I'm talking about late season elk here, you owe it to yourself to go and hunt elk when they're bugling. You, it is a, a, not just an audio experience, not just a visual experience, it's a vibration experience that the whole woods, you feel it. Yeah. And you're talking about how you're trying to replicate that yeah. vibration feel yeah. in yeah. your calls, and it's it's what gets me it excited. Is. I, yeah. There's nothing cooler to pack into the high country and lay in your tent at night and listen to those bulls bugling. I mean, Kurt knows this. I'll literally sit up and go, "You hear that?" <laughs> <laughs> he goes a hundred times. I said every time he did, "I hear that." <laughs> I was going to say he doesn't have the best of ears, but well, yeah. me either. That's it. Uh, and the camera guy's laugh, and I've said this on camera before, is my hearing in my left ear is like gone yeah, because yeah. working in sawmills mm-hmm. or in college, shooting, I'm right-handed. So when I was younger, my dad never gave us hearing protection. Right. You know, that's, yeah. uh, that's what those city folk do. <laughs> well, now, every time I hear an elk bugle, I would swear it's to my right. Yep. And I'll start walking towards it, and the camera guy's like, grab me, hey, no, 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 it's over here. I'm mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? So I, <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool because there'd be three of us standing on a ridge and we'll bugle, and we'll all point different directions. <laughs> He comes from over. No, he comes from uh, So what I end up doing, I usually walk past him and go, oh, he is over there. So I turn around and go back. <laughs> but I actually got to the point where, before I really got hearing aids, that if I heard a bull bugle, I better get be on my knees because he's there. Yeah, I mean, he's within shooting range because I can't hear him without without okay. my hearing aids. Well, Rocky could never pick up the high notes. Right. I so a lot of bulls he didn't hear, but like he said, he he really heard the low frequency. So when he was hearing them, he knew game on. The game's on. <laughs> I remember my my daughter. She hunts with me quite a bit, and uh, we were one time we were walking through the woods and we had a bull bugle. I didn't hear it. She just said, we got a bull bugle. I said, all right, let's go. So we're going and we're going and I'd stop and bugle and I'd, I'd look at her and she goes, yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm still bugling. So we keep going and pretty soon she grabbed me and goes, how much closer are you going to get? I said, why? She said, he's right there at 20 yards. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, no. And I finally said, I got to get hearing aids. Yeah. You know, and, just, and has it helped? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah tremendously. I, in fact, Sometimes hear better than a normal person. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it does. Yeah. I'll hear hear sounds out there that it, it's right there, <laughs> you know? huh. and they'll go, "You heard an elk bugle?" Like, yeah, there's an elk bugling. Wow. Yeah, so it's really helped me a lot. My left ear is still pretty bad, but my right yeah. ear is really good. Good. And uh, I'm learning to the directional part with my hearing aids, and yeah. boy, it's made a big difference. Yeah, you know, I suppose big difference. Your, if you're an archery yeah. elk hunter, hearing is. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh oh. I went to Colorado, and a couple of us went over there, and my daughter flew in to meet me, and she was going to hunt, but she wanted to see if it was worthwhile, and you can buy it over the counter, so right. she was going to wait a while. And I hadn't killed my elk yet, so she said, when you kill your elk, then I'll hunt. She said, I'll run the camera. So we get up that next morning, there was five of us was heading up the trail, and, and one of them went like this, and he said, there's a bull bugling. I went, what'd you say? 
<laughs> he said, there's a bull bugle. I go, I'm looking at him. Go, You're reading lips. I said, I can't hear you. What are you. Why are you whispering? My hearing, I don't know if it was from the high altitude that we were in, but I literally couldn't hear nothing. Wow. I couldn't hear the guy talking to me. You know, and I was like yawning and doing yeah. everything else, trying to get weird. Trying couldn't to hear nothing. Girls, yeah. And I finally, we got up top the ridge and, and uh, we bugled and the whole canyon lit up. That's what they told me. I said, yeah, there's one there, there's one there, there's four over here. And I'm going, I didn't hear a blasted thing. They were just, everybody was pointing, you know. I was yeah. like, I mean, you're lost without your hearing. Right. You don't know what's going on. And my daughter walks up and she grabbed me like this. She said, come, come on. So down over the hill we go, and and uh, Michael Batiste was with us, and he stayed back, and I'm sitting there with my bow and standing up against a tree, and I'm waiting for Michael to bugle, and I can't hear nothing. I'm going, the heck, you know? I'm just this is ridiculous. I can't hear anything. Yeah. Misty's about oh I don't know five six feet from me with the camera, and pretty soon she goes. I'm looking down the draw, and I can't see nothing. All of a sudden, I feel this coming, the ground vibrating. I said, yeah. oh, I know what that sound is. That's yeah. an elk. <laughs> All of a sudden, elk walks right out in the open. I pull up, dead. Huh. My hearing never come back for two weeks. Really? Yep, lost it totally. Both ears. Was. I got an infection, and they say... Oh. Uh, like a cold yeah. and then the high altitude together it made my eardrums swell and not vibrate really and I couldn't hear anything boy oh, that was a that'd be a frustrating. Bad, yeah, frustrating but I, I've got that elk on video yeah. And, uh, and now I can hear it. And now I get sounded like. And, I, and it actually bugled when it was standing there, and I never heard it. Really? Yeah, I just stood there and wow. bugled, and I was like, oh, well, I'm shooting him anyway. I don't care if I can't hear him or not. Oh. <laughs> so in the whitetail world, and I'm sure, Kurt, this was a big part of your considerations when you were hanging tree stands in Kansas, moon phases. The whitetail guys are moon phase junkies. Yeah. I don't have the luxury of worrying about moon phases because I got to be from place A to B to C. I, I, it's just that's what the calendar says, and the right. moon's going to do what it does. Sure. You guys have any thoughts on moon phases as it relates to elk hunting? You know, it, it doesn't help, and it does help at the same time. It, what, but, I, what, what do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> your elk are more readily uh, out rutting at nighttime during a full moon, mm -hmm. but that don't mean they quit in no, the morning. They, they can't. They. Yeah, they're they're in the full rut, man. They're they're swinging. Yeah, um, they may bed down a little sooner because mm -hmm. they've been up all night. Yeah, but to me, I like it when they're bugling all night because that means they're fired up. Yeah, and you can get into them during the day, and that means as long as that cow's in heat. They'll stay fired up, even with a full moon. But if they are not in heat and the temperature's warm out during the day, they may go to bed a lot earlier. Right. So I, you, the I temperature about super hot temps yes. than I do moon phases. Yeah. To me, the temperature plays more in your success than anything does. Yeah. Uh, I can remember in the old days, we used to get uh, frost and, and heavy dew in the middle of August. And uh, by the first September, when the elk season was on, yeah. elk were bugling. Because it was cold, and yeah. uh, every day got colder and colder and colder. Even snows on you, and you know, twenty degrees down, and the elk are just screaming. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we don't have a lot of elk bugling to this anymore, because our weather has changed so bad yeah. that we have Indian summers all September. Right, and so they have to rut during the night when it's cooler. Cooler, yeah. And the summer, when it gets hot in the daytime, eighty degrees by nine o'clock in the morning, they're in bed. Yeah, and it's tough. Yeah, I've, I can't, I, there's a book, I can't remember, it was the one by uh, 
Wixom or the one by Jack Ward Thomas, but it uh, it talked about an elk in that has its winter coat when it's 60 degrees out or something spends more energy staying cool than they will staying warm when it's below zero. Right. Yeah, And so they, I mean, you think about it, how could they rut when it was 75 degrees in the middle of the day? They, yeah. they'd but croak. <laughs> I'll, I'll, let, me, let me interject this perspective on the whole thing. And I, I want everybody to think about it from the biggest picture. Mm-hmm. And the biggest picture is we hunt animals in the fall when they're rutting or the breeding season. Right. But really in the big picture, that's not really what that's about. It's honestly about the survival of the species, which takes place when the calendar rolls to spring. So you can, you can put moon phases in, you can put heat of the day, cold of the day, all that in. But Randy, the truth of it is, they still have to mate oh, right. and, and reproduce. Exactly. They don't have the luxury of saying, oh, it's too hot, it's yeah. this, the moon's not right. Yeah. Because if those calves and yeah. those fawns are Get not dropped. born in the proper part of the spring, Survival. their species is non-existent. Right. I've had more conversations about that with guys in, in, yep. in, in my guiding and outfitting that I've done these last 10 years and different things. I'm like, guys, maybe the vocalization part is different. That's what maybe I the, the time they cross this particular trail or they get a drink is different. But let me, let me assure you, they're still rutting yep. and they're going to continue to rut in the particular month that it's all designed to happen around because this all happens because of what happens in five, six, six and a half months, depending on what we're talking about. Yep. Deer, elk, moose, doesn't matter, caribou, whatever they right. are, they still have to rut because yep. they still have to recreate yeah that's and i i do i hear it a lot too kurt where people say oh the rut is late this year it was three weeks late you know what if the rut is three weeks late those calves are going to be born in the middle of june yes and then when and and then when you get a winter like we had this year and the snows come early and it's four feet deep the first 30 days of winter every one of them will die yeah if, if and so i tell people it's in, to your point, the vocalizations may make it seem like it's later, mm-hmm. right. but they're still running. They're still running. They, they, are. they They need the pulse of the of the calves to be born in this really quick window when it, it it's a predator survival thing because wolves and bears can only eat so many of them mm-hmm. if they're all on the ground at the same That's time. Right. They, and then within a few weeks, they've grown big enough to escape. To get away, so yes. it's, it's It's all these mechanisms that are, like you said, it's there... It's, it's yeah. how it's evolved. Yeah. It's too and, easy to look at it from just those tiny little pieces yeah. when it's just that pristine week in September for the elk to bugle or the moose the last part of September, 1st of October or deer in that magical window in November. Right. It's too easy to put it into that little tiny span when it's really about this much bigger picture. Yeah. So, Rocky, we were talking about this yesterday and you surprised me when you... when. Again, we got on way too many hunting stories yesterday. We needed to have this role in yesterday. I asked you because, and, and I ask a lot of people this who who have a lot of elk experience. When, if you got to pick your calendar days, if we, if, and I, I'm not going to say the rut always is peaks September 15th to the 25th, but if you ask most biologists, they'll say that sure. the peak some usually falls somewhere in there. What days would you elk hunt? If, if you only get to pick a week, which what day would you start? I've always liked the 8th through the 20th, you know, even the 8th through the 15th. But the 8th through the 20th has always been my favorite. For the, 
any place, anywhere, any. Well, if anytime. you realize, yeah, if you realize that most of your bulls are bachelor bulls all summer long, mm-hmm. and uh, by the first September they're starting to come out of their little hidey holes. Mostly they live in the high country and head to the valleys to pick up the cows where they've had their calves, yeah. and. Uh, they come down there and they do a little pecking order, and this pecking order takes place usually about the eighth September on till and about the bulls are doing their pecking mm-hmm. order. Yeah. yeah, mostly it's a five to a six day period, so it can vary a couple days either way. But the eighth through the fifteenth is primarily a good time for your pecking order to happen, and uh, they're going around strutting and bugling and pushing each other around to find out who is going to be the master of the herd. Okay, and. Uh, if you can get into that situation, and it doesn't mean they're bugling, but they're right. they're going around sparring, and they're yeah. pushing each other around, they're walking around with their head in the air and thinking I'm big and tough, and yeah. and uh, sometimes they they do bugle pretty good depending on the weather. But uh, to me, I feel that when I do get a bull to answer me that time of year, he's going to come. Really? Yeah, I may not hear twenty bulls bugling that day, but I'll hear one. I can get him to come because he's ready to put you in your place. Really? But, yeah, so he's coming saying, you know what? I don't recognize you, mm-hmm. but I'm about ready to show you you yeah. shouldn't be hanging out here. I've pal. already shoved these five guys out of the country. Now it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, huh. So that's a, a, your week would be that, if you only get seven days, it'd be the 8th through the 15th. That'd be my pick. Okay. Yep. Yep. Kurt, you got anything different than that? Um, I wouldn't, no. I would okay. agree with that. I've, I've you know, my, my elk hunting's been the, the last 20 years, and, and that's been my experience as well. I've okay. been with Rocky where we've killed more elk the first two weeks that we've been out than the last two. Mm-hmm. Now, not herd bugles. Right. Not, just like he said, we definitely you go the last two weeks, you're going to hear more bugles. But to actually get elk to respond to you, get them in bow range, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's hands down more successful the first two weeks than the last two right. for us. It's a little sure. frustrating because you'll get out there sometimes and never hear an elk bugle that right. time of year. Yeah. You know, so but, what do you do if, you, if they aren't responding and aren't bugling <clears throat> back? That's when we go into what I call the Rockies ruckus. <laughs> Okay, what do you break out the beer and have a big Yeah, a big party, big, yeah. (laughs) What's Rocky's ruckus? This is a scenario that uh, I have used, and I've actually seen other guys use it in the industry too, especially guys that know how to hunt elk. But it's a scenario where the elk aren't talking. Um, You can't really sneak on the ground as hot and dry. You can't really get in on them. So you go to these pockets where they're hanging up and they're sleeping. They're they're there because there's water and you see a lot of sign. You see some rubs around. Yeah, you know there's elk somewhere, but they're not responding. So I get down and if you're by yourself, of course, you're going to try to set up with the wind, you know, downwind for the elk are at. So when the elk comes in, you got a chance at him. But normally if you hunt with a buddy, set him out 30 yards from you, downwind of where you're setting at. And I'll go into a routine of some calling. I'll start off really soft cow calls, three or four of them, add a cow in there, an older cow, a younger calf, and a little communication. Do it fairly slow at first. And you're, you're looking at about a three-minute three minute process of calling techniques here. And then you add in, a, you get a little more excited. You start getting them a little bit faster and beat the ground. Stomp on the ground a little bit, like a cow's taken off from something, and do a little estrus sound. A little more nasal sound to it. Get more excited. And all of a sudden, throw in a bugle. Just a hype it. And then a little couple little glunks. If you can do those. And what you're doing is creating 
an environment that this, this bull is laying over there 200 yards from me going, what the heck am I missing out on? Something's going on over there. <laughs> then you shut down and you don't say anything. You just sit there for 10, 15 minutes and watch and listen and wait. You can't go and do anything anyway. It's hot, right. you know, and it's, you're tired. It's a good way to rest, but you're, you're still hunting right. and something can happen. And then huh. 10 minutes go by and you go, no, let's try it again. Do the same thing. From, from the same location. Same location. Okay. Because I'll, I'll guarantee you, I've seen bulls come in at 100 yards and just stand there and stare down that where that sound's coming from for hours. Really? They'll just stand there and look at you. Just stare. Huh. And then they can't see you, but they're staring. Yeah. And then they start sneaking. Okay. They start coming in to get in the wind in their favor. You'll hear a little branch snap and you, all right, something's coming. <laughs> they don't, they usually won't bugle when you do that Rocky's ruckus. Okay. They, they just come in silent. But what's neat is he's coming in and you see him because you're doing the calling. All of a sudden, shunk. Yeah. Your ambush guy is down there, got him. Yeah. And we've killed elk doing that. Biggest well, bull I ever shot with my bull, Rocky, was a very similar to that deal. We might not have set that up intentionally, but that's how that morning transpired. Well, we kind of did set it up intentionally because we we bedded the bulls down. We did. And we, we could, every once in a while you hear a moan. Mm, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. you knew they were bedded. And they were three, 400 yards from us, bed down. And I, I just said, let's just take a break here. It's 11 o'clock. We've chased them all morning. They're not going to let us get in close. And let's just take a break and eat lunch yeah. so, and take a nap. Yeah. You know, and so we were sitting there eating lunch and uh, every once in a while I'd just I want to hear that bull bugle so I'd fire off a bugle <laughs> he'd go Ooh. yeah he's still there yeah. you know he hasn't moved yet and, and I'd throw a couple cow calls in and I was I mean I'm that far from Kurt <clears throat> kind of leaning up against a tree like there's a big old white fir tree and Jim Brennan's sitting there on a log eating his sandwich and he's a camera guy uh-huh. and Kurt kind of got his face looking out there and he grabbed me like he goes Right there, right there, right there. And I go, what? And he's a, a bull. <laughs> and I look over there, and, and Jim gets the camera on, and here's this bull taking this log that's that big around, 30 foot long, putting it in his horns, and he's throwing it up in the air and catching it Picking and it up. raking it and Mud stomping. And Mud and And he's about 60 yards from us, probably, something like that. And we never heard him come in. Not huh. a word. He's just there. So we are get ready, you know. Yeah. Kurt gets his release on the bow there. And uh, well, I never said any more words. And pretty soon he just drops the log and he just starts walking to it. Boom, boom, boom. And he's coming and coming and coming. He walks right between those two big trees at 12 yards. He just looks around a little bit and he goes, <laughs> you know, like, where are you? I know yeah. you're here somewhere. Yeah. And uh, Kurt's at full draw. And the bull's at the wrong side of the tree and stuff. And, and pretty soon he walks up a little closer and he walks behind the big tree that's right in front of Kurt. And he stops and his nose is sticking out. Yeah, I can see his tree. face. That's all that's I got. All I could see. Oh, my goodness. I mean, right there. I'm talking 10 feet. <laughs> this, and Kurt's, you can see Kurt doing this. And Rocky's, and Rocky's closer. He's got his back to the bull on the, the tree that the bull's on the other side of. So he's, <laughs> he's right inside there. of six feet from the, from the elk. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I go, what a cow call, Kurt. He goes, yeah, anything. Yeah, I was done. I mean, I couldn't he, hold the bull could, much I could tell I had to do something to get that right. bull to move, do something. So I went, meow. And the bull just stepped out and go, meow, thunk. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Too late. And he runs, he runs down the hill and he runs down. You hear him crash, fall over. Right. Kurt and I do the high five garbage, yeah. you know, and all that stuff. And about that time, <laughs> 
right up there. And I said, son of a gun, there's another bull coming in. Wow. And, and Kurt, I didn't have a bow. I was doing the calling. Yeah. And I said, I've shot your bow before, Kurt. So we put the release no on me. Yeah. yeah. Put the release bow. on me. Just three inch too short a draw. <laughs> it's short. <laughs> but I really, we had a water jug and I just put, put it up there and I went at 20 yard. I went, chunk, I hit the water jug. I said, I can shoot it 20 yeah. yards. No problem. So up the hill we go, and Brennan's behind me, and Kurt stays back, and and uh, Colin, and here comes the bull, another big old six point. And he just comes walking down, and he stops on this ridge, and he's broadside perfect at forty yard. I could, if I'd had my bull, I'd been over with. Right. But I said I ain't shooting that far. I'm not confident yeah. if he'll come to twenty yards. And he just stood there, and pretty soon you could feel the wind coming up the hill, but he was here, and I'm over here, so the wind wasn't hitting him. But he threw his head up in the air like this. Whoa. He did that warning bark, you know, and I was yeah. like, what's he doing? And he's looking down the hill, and he, whoa! Pretty soon, whoo, takes off, and he bugles as he walks away, gone. Huh. You know, and I'm going, he didn't wind us. What yeah. the heck was going on? It was a bull that Kurt had just shot and oh. died down there, and he's had encounters with that bull before. Gotcha. And they, so he smelled he his buddy. It. He knew that bull was down. He said, I ain't going down there and get my butt whipped. <laughs> so he just left. Huh. But we almost pulled a double off that day, midday hunt. And it was just, they were you both. guys were taking it easy. Mm -hmm. You said, well, let's set up and have lunch within a few hundred yeah. yards of and where just, we know we, they've bedded. And yeah, we didn't want to walk out because it was too far to walk out. We wanted to hunt the evening hunt. So right. we were just going to bed down till the evening hunt. And but just all this kept, uh, kept enough calling going that there was some activity in that spot. And, yeah. and here they came. Yeah, yeah. It's just, amazing how many times I see people going back to camp mm -hmm. at 1030 in the morning. Yeah. I, I stay out all day. And in places where water is a constraint, New Mexico, Arizona, sure. I just go and sit along a trail or somewhere that I know, hey, these bulls often will go bed their cows and they'll come in silent and alone to water at mm -hmm. noon or one or two o'clock and then they'll head back to the to the cows. So at least I'm I might be napping, I might be eating, but I'm still yeah, keeping I'm myself still in the action to yeah. or at least in the possibility of something like that. But Absolutely. Uh, I remember September 8th through the 15th. Yeah. I'm going to have to go home and change my applications now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm one of these. Uh, no, I want to hunt the 19th well, through the yeah. 20th. You just got to learn to adapt to that time and have your hunting techniques a little different. Is yeah. all, you know, just, so if, if someone is hunting later than that, and you are going to hear more bugles. Mm -hmm. That, that oh, is yeah. the fun part. For sure. yeah, You're exactly. chasing bugles all day. Yeah. You get different ideas of how you guys do it? Yeah, you know, they, a lot of times you got the elk feeding in a big meadow and you hear them right at daylight and they're all bugling and cow talking. When as soon as it gets daylight, they you bugle because you think you got a chance. They just start walking off. They go, eh, I'm bugling yeah. at him no more. Every time I bugle, they run. They're going to leave anyway, whether you bugled or not. It's time to head to bedding ground. Right. So they gather up their cows and the bulls follow the cows and whatever and up the hillside they go. All I do is maybe once in a while, maybe cow call or maybe a light bugle just so I can pinpoint them where they are at so I can keep with them. Yeah. And I stay behind them. You can't ever bring a bull backwards because he's already been there, plus the wind is not in his favor no more. Yeah. So I try to slip up the hillside to get alongside of them, not in front of them, because the wind will come back on right. them, but parallel them as you're going, and maybe set up once in a while on bugle or calcon. Hopefully one will sweep out. Mainly they're satellite bulls that do that. Yeah. And uh, I remember Kurt and I one time there 
uh, down in Southern Idaho, mid McCall's area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing that, following a herd and come around this corner and it, we f- come into a place that looked like somebody would take a rototiller <laughs> no, <yeah>. and rototilled <laughs> up a whole acre of ground. Just, really? I mean, dirt two foot deep, manure. I said, man, this is their bedding area. They live here. Yeah. And uh, you could hear the bulls coming. And, we're, and what had happened too is the wind had started switching and coming up the hill. And that's what they do. Just before they get to where they bed, the wind switches. And they'll right. bed so they can have that wind coming up on those benches they're bedding on. Yep. And they can see above them. Nothing can come down. And I said, we got to get above. So we circled up above a little bit and they were still coming up. And I said, let's do the scenario, the half moon drive. So I threw a few cow calls in here and Kurt and I moved ahead 20 yards. I just stood there out in the open. Pretty soon down the hill, you see a bull come up the tree. He bugles away and I go, he's gonna come. Pretty soon he just turns and he walks up and he's walking from here to the camera, you know, and he stops and looks around and I draw back, schwack. <laughs> he was going to that sound where right. I just cow called. Right, he, he thought you were there. He mm-hmm. had no idea you'd yeah, moved. Had no idea. He was yeah. going to that sound. And yeah. uh, it, I mean, you play those games and it works. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. The, we could tell hunting stories all day long. <laughs> we oh, did man. yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I always try to put into every podcast is a little pitch for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Uh, and you guys have really built a strong relationship with the Elk Foundation. And that we have. And I'm, I suspect that's by design on purpose. It's, yeah, it's I mean... What, I mean, what oh, you guys stand for, conservation and uh, getting people out hunting. Oh, and, absolutely. I don't know how that doesn't make sense from our perspective yeah. um, with our goals, with our elk calls and the success that they've had, how we wouldn't want to partner with them yeah. and, um, and, um, and stay alongside of what they're doing. I mean, I believe in it wholeheartedly, what they're up to and what they've done. And, um, and you would be very naive to say that our elk, the dynamic of elk hunting has changed dramatically in, in a, a decade or, or more. I mean, with the introduction of the wolves and, and, right. and, and just, you know, population distribution area, you know, with numbers being down. Um, and, and they're the one fighting chance the elk has outside of the, you know, right. our dollars that we buy the licenses and the, the gear. They actually set out each and every day with a, a goal in mind to right. to make the elk herds flourish. That's um, their job. And, and along with that, it, it comes an awesome bunch of people that support that, and they uh, and the majority of those guys are our, our customers yeah. and and loyal people to the call. So when we got an opportunity to um, partner with them yeah. on the corporate level, um, I'm crazy excited about that. Um, along with that, um, come with you know some. Uh, licensing stuff with some of our products yeah. and uh, people will start to see those in the stores. They'll show up this year in the stores and you'll see the mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain logo right on the packaging. And, uh, right. uh, we and that helps elk. Oh, of course it does. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's a portion of that, their purchase that'll go back to the foundation that, uh, yeah. that all goes right back into the pool of money that they use for whether it's the feeding um, yeah, the projects they had this winter right. or, or land acquisitions or whatever. It's all a positive for the elk. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's been a, it's been an exciting time for us as a company to um, have the opportunity um, to sit down with those guys at the foundation and, and put together a, a plan for the coming years to be partnered with them. And um, we feel like that uh, obviously our, our L calls fit right in the, the wheelhouse of what they're doing, and oh, people yeah. start to see the the calls show up as packages for the banquets and and at any turn that the 
the products can be used to help fund, raise funds and do things all over the country. It's, it's an exciting time for us. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it when companies reach out to all the conservation groups. Obviously, I'm biased towards Elk and the Elk Foundation, but it, it's great when companies do that because over and above all the other things they do, they're putting their money where their mouth is, both for their customer, for the elk hunter, whether they're a customer or not, and for the wildlife, which for me, that's what it gets back to. It's the, the land that generates these elk. Uh, these yeah. elk need healthy habitat, and we need access to them. And the Elk Foundation just surpassed the million acres, them and their partners, million acres of new or improved public hunting access, which yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot of ground. That's a lot of ground, especially in a time when you look across the landscape and due to new land ownership and stuff, access is getting harder, not yes, easier. So that million acres gets worth more, yeah. has more and more value to it all the time. And they've done a bunch of them here in Idaho. They've done a bunch in Mont- well, every place they've got a presence, yeah, they've done absolutely. a bunch of them. So I was very impressed as well, Randy, when they, they showed me the numbers of membership from the beginning, they're they're at, they're they're paid active members to where it is today. It yeah. is mind blowing to just look at that on a graph. Uh, <laughs> there's no dips. There's no there's no stagnation. It just continues to grow. Yeah. Um, and every year they seem to set a record, a, a new record in, in people that are joining or or, or act renewing. And yeah. it's very impressive. Do you uh, have any idea yeah. how many members they got now? Yeah. How many? That's a little over two hundred twenty thousand members you know you know what my membership number is i can't i don't know four thousand really yeah you were there (laughs) i was there from the (laughs) get-go and there was that many people at the very first convention signing up ahead of me oh really that many people signed up in that one that first convention which was held in spokane washington yeah yeah we we had uh charlie decker and bob munson on a podcast mm -hmm. i think it's podcast number eight or nine but they told the story about how the elk foundation got started and how it just about fell apart multiple times and you know they started in a little office in troy montana and then they moved to a warehouse facility in missoula and now they through the generous donations of a landowner who gave them land and then members who helped fund the, the new visitor center they've they've uh, they've made Come some uh, some amazing improvements and yeah. uh, I'm just I'm thankful they are yeah, here if memory yeah. serves me Rocky I believe that starting number and it was in the 80s sometime right, I apologize for not knowing I think it was 6,000 yeah. So you said you were four, but I believe 4, that very first number on that chart was six. And then, like you said, Randy, it was 220-some plus uh, in, in 2016. I remember yeah. my wife and I sitting in the hotel room with Bob Munson and his wife in the same oh, room really? yeah, yeah, and watching it on TV come on, unfolded yeah. and how excited Bob was. Oh, yeah. It was tremendous. He said, we're on a roll. We're going. Yeah. You know? well, and, I, I feel so lucky to... Yeah, you know, and in full disclosure, I sit on the board of the Elk Foundation for five years now. But when Bob called me, he said, uh, "You know, Decker thinks that you might be a worthwhile candidate. We're going to make you serve on a committee for a while." But and it, it's more formal than that. Uh, but Bob and I had had a relationship. He said, I, "Can I scare you off?" I said, "Well, maybe you can, Bob. Tell me why I shouldn't be scared <laughs> off." But Bob is this guy of continual optimism. 
He, when he told you we're rolling, we're going places. If you ask Bob every morning, where's the Elk Foundation going? He'd say something like, yep. we're going places, we're, going places. we're, we're, we're rolling. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when it was all done, I said, Bob, you, you haven't scared me off yet. So count me in if, if you guys will have me. But uh, mm-hmm. he's just one of those optimists who is driven by the cause of Elk. And, and here's the funny part. And I said this on a, a prior podcast is, Charlie is, you know, those co-founders, there were four of them, but Charlie and Bob have stayed with it even till today. Charlie runs a logging company. And a lot of people are like, well, why would a logger worry about elk? Like, you don't understand. Yeah. If yeah. if you come from a logging timber background, you see that landscape almost like a farmer sees his oh, land. Yeah. Exactly. You you see the changes. You're there every day. You recognize. Guess what? Something is happening out here, and you you get to see those animals when you're out in the woods. You, you just kind of build this this appreciation for them and this passion for them. So. It, I understand in today's modern world of how everyone gets painted with this broad brush, why some people are like, well, why would a logger be such a passionate conservationist? Well, Rocky, you, you come from the same background. You, oh, yeah. You're as fanatic about it as anyone. I come from that background. I'm, you know, so I, I just like the irony that I see on some people's face when yeah. Charlie gets up and, and he always says, I'm a Jippo logger from Libby, Montana. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to kind of know Charlie a little bit to understand the full effect of that. But there's a lot he, of people out there that are think logging is bad. Right. But it's yes. because of logging is why we have elk. In, in a lot of instances, they, there was they, no elk in this country when the Indians lived here and Lewis and Clark come through here. Yeah. I mean, was, Lewis and Clark almost starved to death yeah, coming yeah. through here that yeah. first winter. Nothing but big timber here. Yeah. And there was no underbrush, nothing until the 1910 and 1920 fires went through and wiped mm-hmm. out all the timber up the Locksaw Selway in the North Fork yeah. and uh, created all that feed and all those elk out of Montana migrated in here off the plains and Kansas yeah. and you know yeah. all that country. And, stuff, yeah. You know, yeah. But there so, was no elk, no deer. And that just goes to prove that there was no wolves here then either. <laughs> what would they eat? Fish? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the fish-eating wolves of Idaho. Yeah. But the, uh, the whole idea of the, that, that I bring that up is I just think it's great that hunting in general, conservation, and specifically a species like elk, some of the greatest advocates are the people who are out there on the land. Yeah. and see what's going on, who the land provides their living. And I don't care if you're, like I said, a farmer, a logger, a rancher, a, a whatever, and, and a hunter. If you're out there on the land, you're seeing and feeling and, and noticing things that you're not going to get off the documentary on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, it's, it's just, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, how cool. We live in a country where even some kid who grew up in a trailer house in Big Falls, Minnesota, can be an elk hunter. <laughs> I mean, how crazy is that, that I can go and hunt elk all over the West yeah. for whatever I'm willing, you know, if I want to budget a little money and pay a tag fee and travel and put a pack on my back, where in the heck else can snotty-nosed little kids like I was grow up to be an elk hunter? Yeah, no, no, it's awesome. What a country. It is. Absolutely. It's so cool. I appreciate you guys and the enthusiasm you have for the elk. I grew up with them, so sometimes I end up taking a lot of this stuff for granted. Oh, really? Yeah, a lot of it I do, but I appreciate that we have the elk and to hunt them, but 
sometimes I don't get as excited as some guy that has never been around them. But yeah. I mean, I live with them. I grew yeah. up in my backyard. <laughs> and, and mm -hmm. uh, I have ever since I was born, I've been around elk that I can remember. You right. know? And so it's, I, I hate to say that, that I take things for granted sometimes, no, but, but I do. Yeah. You know? And I still think back when I was a kid, I thought only billionaire, well, at the time, if you were a millionaire, you were somebody, you mm -hmm. know, and when I was reading my Outdoor Life magazine at... In my high school, they subscribed to Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, and Fur Fishing Game. On cool study that. hall, I could go to the library and read hunting magazines. But I remember dreaming that only millionaires mm -hmm. got to be elk hunters. I didn't even dare dream that I would someday hunt elk. It, it seemed that far uh, away from the possibility of some young kid right. like well, I was. Well, you know the reason why, though, don't you? Because we didn't have elk everywhere in this country, nowhere. Right. No, and and the only did. place you did was a remote back country, mm -hmm. and you had to hire an outfitter to get you in there. Right. So you had to spend money to go elk hunting. But right. nowadays, there's elk everywhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a different story now. I, I just think about that. And I'm like, what a country. Gosh, I can't yeah. believe I'm yeah. lucky enough to yeah. live here. And it makes me smile. And people are like, you, you fell on your head when you were a child, which I'm sure <laughs> I did many times. But so, but. Uh, we're uh, <clears throat> we're pushing the two hour mark here. I I know you guys got more calls to produce and orders to get out, but are there any parting comments you want to leave the audience with? I mean, we, we yesterday we talked about we're gonna go elk hunting, and I'm gonna be able to take notes someday, but I don't know. Well, I, one thing that I want to state, and is uh, my company wouldn't be where it is if it wasn't for the people that I have surrounded me with. Yeah. Uh, the pro staffers and Kurt and my employees. and uh, They're the ones that make the company grow. You know, I'm just part of it too, but without their help, it would never get yeah. that far. And then to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I, I really appreciate the fact that they have named us the first family of elk calling. Yeah. You know, that, well, that's a cool honor. You guys have kind of earned that. Well, <laughs> whether we've earned it or not, it's, it's just a cool honor to be able to be associated with that. Yeah, well, thanks for all you've done for the Elk Foundation, Rocky, okay. and all the people you have taught to Elk Foundation. You, you are like the most, I'll just say, you, if you got paid for every hour that you've spent teaching people to hunt elk, wow. you, 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 you'd be retired by now. You wouldn't be here today. We could, we could but, go hunt those expensive ranches. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Kurt, yeah. are there any last little tidbits you want to leave the audience with about, hey, folks, be, be on the lookout for this. Well, I, I, was gonna I, say, I don't nothing, want to put you on the spot there. Whatever you want to tell them. Uh, nothing more than just keep tabs on what we got. Yeah. There's always going to be something new and... Um, yeah. Uh, with a purpose. Yeah. Not not gimmicky and not slashy and 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 just because it's the next thing to have, but because we've truly believed in uh, uh, a need mm -hmm. for for something different or something better, and Rocky and all of us have teamed together to try to create those products. And um, so you may not see us release fifteen new products a year like you see some companies. It might right. only be one. Right. Um. But. Uh, we will truly feel like that when we do. There's, there's, it, it belongs in your pack, in your pocket, around your neck, yeah. part of your gear, um, because there would be a, a time and a place that it would give you an advantage and, and hopefully fill a tag. Yeah, and that's why we do it every day. It's just, right. it's just cool to get to um, make a living um, 
at a hobby, if you will. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a cool thing in the world because uh, you can yeah. you can keep that passion going, uh, um, you know, on on the weekends. Because that's one of the things I wanted to point out was that. Um, when all this is over and we clock out for the day, so to speak, which yeah. really we don't, but because it is who we are, um, to go spend my weekend, it'd be in the woods. Yeah. So you know, to, to, to that point, Marcus and I go to your little uh, coffee diner here and have breakfast this morning. And what was the the guy out here in the warehouse yesterday who was helping us? Kyle, was that his name? Mm-hmm. Who comes in, sits down, wearing his camouflage, telling hunting stories? Kyle, he, but he didn't sit down with us. He sat down at oh, a different yeah. booth. Sure. He, you can tell that one of the requirements it seems to <laughs> to work here must be hunting. It, it, it sure it helps. Definitely helps. Yes. <laughs> this, help. this is not some factory where it's just oh, take anyone off the street, and if you can punch something out, we'll hire you. Well, if yeah. you're anti-hunter, you don't want to move to this country. Oh <laughs> 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 uh, well. I hope we get to do this, and next time when we do it, we should do it from an elk camp somewhere. Sure, we should do that. Yep. And uh, that. I, I'd love to take notes and, okay. and uh, tell big stories. I'm, I'm good at telling stories. I'm not good at killing <laughs> one. I, 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 uh, you've I, got a few under your belt. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, you know, a blind squirrel finds a nut kind <laughs> of thing. But uh, anyhow, guys, thanks okay. for being here. Thanks for all you do. Uh, Rocky Mountain hunting calls, if you don't have them, uh, you should. And if you do have them, you know why you should. And I want to thank the fans that support us. Without them buying our calls, we wouldn't be where we're at. That's exactly right. Appreciate our customers. Yeah, you have a pretty loyal following, too. (laughs) You you know, you get in the Ford, Chevy, Dodge kind of arguments. You guys have as passionate and avid of followers and and supporters of your product of any group I know of in the in the call and elk hunting world. Man, we so. like we like the energy that that creates. And um, and uh, it goes back to what I said, making a quality product that actually performs for the guys yeah. in the woods. And when they can fill a tag, because even just one part of that hunt was because of what we, we were able to do for them. Um, that's the greatest reward in the world. Yeah. Those pictures that come in, fill the inbox and the emails all <laughs> September from, hey, I had your call or I did this. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All you listening. Uh, thanks, Randy. Yeah. Appreciate Rocky, it. Kurt, thanks Thank so you, much. Sir. And uh, everybody out there watching and listening, hang around. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll give you another podcast to listen to. And we sure appreciate all the people who follow us also, because without all these great people, we wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion <laughs> today. So thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>